<laughs> you always were a problem for me, Joey. When Mom brought you home from the hospital, I tried to strangle you in your crib. I guess all kids try to do that. She caught me, whacked the daylights out of me. I've heard that story. Well, what do you think? Better late than never. Richie. Tell me what I gotta do to make things right. You could do something, I guess. You could die, Joey. Hello there, welcome to Pivotal Film. My name is Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this You need to pull your mic closer a little bit. And this is episode 14. (laughs) Um, Yeah, what else is there to say? 14. Well, apparently, after 112 or 13 episodes, I don't know where to put my mic. That's what we can say. Well, we were looking looking stuff up. Yeah. We were talking about uh, one of our directors today. Yeah. What he's been doing with himself. Or doing with others. Uh, doing with others. Yeah. Uh, that director's Peter Lorre. Did he ever direct anything? Yeah, Peter Lorre directed something, didn't he? I don't know. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Who gives a shit? Anyways, if you're going to be directing something, it looks like you're going to be putting that motherfucker on streaming because unless, everything is becoming streaming. Unless your movie was unfortunately picked up by A24. Yeah, and then twenty four will just be like. Then who knows? They're just like we're gonna release this on the billboards. Like remember they did that? Yeah, yeah. Last summer, um, last summer, like fifteen years ago. Uh, yeah, because because Disney's now transitioning to put all their stuff on streaming. Souls just getting not even getting a premiere access thing. Souls just getting. I thought for sure they would premiere mm-hmm. access that film. And they're like no. Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know what to. I don't know what to make of it. I think Early reviews point, are really good. I think at this point, Black Widow probably gets. I think Black Widow gets a premiere access. I don't. I. I. I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to work something out between the theaters where they can run this stuff in. They can run this stuff next year, but put it out and charge for it now. My my dark conspiracy theory is Disney's just going to wait out a theater mm-hmm. until the theater collapses, and because that Paramount Accords. Drop the just gonna be like and purchase theater chains. Right. I mean, we had that conversation. I feel like, you know, when this started, yeah. and I feel like you know Disney and Amazon and a couple of other big companies were just we just does assumed... Donald Trump own a, a theater chain because Jeff Bezos will buy that one. No, I don't think he does. It'd be funny if Jeff Bezos started buying up Trump buildings and then just like scratching off personally the Trump name off of it and just calling it like. Shit Fuck hole. Trump Tower or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just graffitis everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't know. It's. I just. I mean, we we talk about this stuff all the time. I feel like it's gonna happen. I feel like Black Widow is like the least of everyone's concern because it's it's not a. It's not gonna be a franchise. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no second Black Widow. Although some of those characters may transition into 
other Marvel movies. I feel like I don't see Florence Pugh becoming a major. Maybe you never know. Solo actress though. Um, but I just feel like something like the new James Bond movie's got a problem. It's got a big fucking problem because well, MGM has a problem. Yeah, for sure. Because that movie is not that company is not like a Disney company. They are every second that that movie is not in theaters, they are losing money. No, and not just like a little bit of money, like a lot of they money. Are drowning. They have creditors. They have to pay off. Right. Um, so, you know, these companies that don't have these streaming wings and stuff like that, that can just bring in, you know, money when they're not doing anything, you know, it's tough. Somehow Bloomhouse is making $10 million every day still. Because they're smart. <laughs> they're just like, no, just from their old theatrical releases, I'm sure. But, but that's, they, I heard Jason Blumhouse before the pandemic even being Jason like. Jason Blum, he's not, his last name isn't House. No, I think it is Blumhouse. Jason Blum's just a nickname. Um, Jason <laughs> Blum was talking. I, he was talking on the Bill Simmons podcast, I think, about how like this is just the way that it's going to go. And he wasn't really super concerned about whether or not stuff went on to went into theaters or went directly to streaming. It was because everything's going to end up in streaming anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. All these companies that just these movies. Remember that Carrie Mulligan movie that was going to win Carrie Mulligan an Oscar? What's the name of that Promising movie? Young Promising Young Woman. Now coming out on Christmas. Okay, on streaming. Or no, on theaters. In theaters. What, what? I mean, that's going to get a VOD. Come on! That's going to get a VOD. They're just releasing that later so that they can get an Oscar, a strong Oscar push now. I guess so. Because it sure as shit isn't going to be Hillbilly Elegy. No. That looks like garbage. Well, that was... And also, it's based on a garbage book Listen, by a garbage human being. Didn't we Fuck l- you, J.P. Vance. Didn't we J. learn Vance. anything from Fast Food Nation? You can't adapt these non-fiction books as like non-fiction, narrative... Quote, non-fiction, as a narrative... Like, uh, you know, a fictional narrative movie. You just can't do it. If you're struggling from opioids, you can just pull yourself up from the bootstraps and go right to Yale Law School. Is that something you can't do? No, I'm just saying everyone can do it. And the reason why they can't is because of welfare. Hmm. Welfare just prevents them from becoming people. Hmm. That is... Sounds like something Ted Cruz would say. The moral of of Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know what Ron Howard's doing unless he, like, fucks with it. And it's like, spoilers, J.D. Vance, like, explodes at the end. (laughs) It's not not even in context. He just shits on Ohio throughout the entire thing. Um, He just goes up to Mike DeWin and just, like, hugs him. They just embrace each other naked. Yeah. In a non-sexual way. Well, that's why, like, the... Just lathered and... The heroin book I like is Sam Quijone's Dreamland. It's great, and it's not what you're saying. It's 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 not what Hillbilly Elegy is. It takes a more like rational, pragmatic view, like a big picture view of of how heroin has destroyed America. My favorite heroin book is Phantom Tollbooth. You think it's about heroin? Sure, it's possible. Why not? Why, why wouldn't it be? What if all of those John <laughs> Belair books were? Just is that John Belair? No, but it's like ah, oh, wait, was it John Belair? No, that wasn't John Belair. No, but like uh, that John Belair type book. Who was that guy? Who did Phantom Tollbooth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Norton Juster. Norton Juster. That does not... I always thought it was Norman Juster. Mm. I was putting it back on the bookshelves. Did you ever read that book? I did. I liked it a lot yeah, as a child. That and How to Eat Fried Worms. I never liked How to Eat Fried Worms. I never liked Wayside School. I don't like that. I don't like anything. I liked Where the Sidewalk Ends. I never liked Shel Silverstein. I liked only where the where the sidewalk ends. You know what my problem with like the giving tree is? That there's no there's no perspective. That the tree's not like, ah. <laughs> no, it's that like when the kid cuts down the, the trunk, when he walks away, it's just a trunk stacked on top of some legs. 
I never got over that. Yeah. I was like, this is ridiculous. Shel Silverstein was... This def- book is garbage. Shel Silverstein definitely did drugs. In between oh, yeah. Playboy articles, he did a lot of drugs. Look at his beard. For sure. There's no other way to justify that beard. You know what? You know what is like drugs, Tom? B- beer. Oktoberfest, More Oktoberfest. We're deep in Oktoberfest. This is a... Uh, what, what's, what's the day today? What's, what's the day we're airing this? This is like the uh, you know, 16th, Seven, 17th, eight. 24th. We're airing this on the 24th. Oh... Uh, we're recording yeah, this on the yeah, 15th, yeah, yeah. but we have another part of last week's episode yes. coming Saturday. You are good at dates, Mario. I am. I like this can. I think it's like a Schoolhouse Rocks. Yeah, uh, it is. Definitely. Amnesty Bill. Yeah, it's a, it looks like it's the Amnesty Bill, but he's a Stein dumping more beer into his skull. I'm just a Stein. This is yes, from Stony Creek, a uh, brewery we're not a huge fan of. We don't do a lot of Stony Creek here. Yeah, sorry, Stony Creek. You have a nice location, but your beer is not great. This is Lederhosen, an Oktoberfest lager, 5.9%. They have a little wordiness over here. I'm not going to read it because it's very attractive can. Good 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 color schemes. Let's do it. Dink. Passable. It tastes like a, a macro brewery. Um, Oktoberfest. It's a little empty. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Like it's, it's, it tastes like what you would. If if you were a person who never drank beer, and needed to, or I, my nose is like a little stuff. I can hear it in the feedback. Um, and wanted to, uh, you know, try out an Oktoberfest for the first time. This might be your go-to. This is something that they serve at a sports bar. It's a sports bar Oktoberfest. It's not like smooth though at all. Yeah, but I'm macro just macro brews aren't smooth. I'm still drinking that Connecticut Valley stuff, and that was delicious mm. that yeah. we had last or last week or last week, yeah, or three months ago, three whatever. weeks ago. I don't know. Three weeks ago. Um, yeah, this is very like aggressive. I don't two know. weeks ago, but the also very hollow and weird. Ago. Yeah, I don't know. Um, all right, guys, we're recording this like ten days in advance. We're a little out of we're a little out of sorts from but like a date perspective. The thing we're going to be talking about now, we're recording in a week. Yeah, that's awesome. So, we well, so th- let's just talk. We're not mentioned the next two weeks from a podcast standpoint is going to be a lot of fucking new movies. Yeah, there's a lot of new movies coming out in the next we, couple we of got, weeks. We got we got American Utopia, which I think we're talking about today. Yep. We got we got Trial of Chicago Seven, which, which is I also today. Yeah, today. I think we got Rebecca, which isn't getting the best reviews coming out. What else? We're is gonna watch it though. Borat Two, Cajillionaire, uh, uh, I think comes Kajillionaire. out. Um, um, there's a big one I'm missing. There's witches. Witches. There's a bunch. There's a couple of things, That's six but I can't movies. think of the other one. I felt like there was something else that was the 22nd, 23rd. Yeah, there's enough. There's, isn't there another Netflix movie coming out at the end of the yeah, month? Yeah, I think there is. Let's not look it up. No. All right, let's go talk about uh, whatever the first movie uh, is that we're going to talk about. Utopia, probably. Sure. I think American we start Utopia. with American Utopia. Let's do some dancing. All right, so let's get into some new movies. The first one we're going to talk about is uh, the new HBO release. Max. Not Well, I guess, well, I guess it wasn't Max. HBO Max, but it... I think it was on HBO. Well, it says, proper... H- it says HBO Max right here on the poster. Yeah, it's, right? it's, well, like, it was shown on... It premiered on HBO, and then it didn't go to HBO Max until, like, the next... I don't know. No, it was, like... Wasn't I think it was like almost instantly. Oh, that was I watched, the next day. No, I watched like the first thirty minutes and then I got home mm-hmm. and finished it. Oh, okay, doesn't matter. Uh, we're talking about Spike Lee <sighs> slash David Burns' uh, American Utopia. 
What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. To the connections between all of us. Um, American Utopia is a... Uh, Filmed version of David Byrne's Broadway uh, review. Uh, you know, um, I don't actually know what, how else to describe it. It's a kind of like political uh, harangue, like a treatise on connectivity. Um, but it's also um, a, a, like a best of compilation in a lot of ways. Although my favorite Talking Heads songs are not, you know, anywhere present here. Um, and it was filmed in 2019 end of 2019 although part of it was filmed in february of this year before the pandemic so the ending when they were on their bikes was filmed in 2020 Mm. um it was directed by spike lee uh the cinematography on it is um by ellen kouras who did uh eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and um you know be kind rewind and and stuff like she's got like a really eclectic um catalog and stuff like that um Blow, yeah. Well, Blow was actually a, 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 not an unwell shot movie. She did parts of Coffee and Cigarettes as well. Mm-hmm. So she's she's her Wikipedia page is really interesting. I'm surprised there's not like more information about her. I'm surprised she hasn't been nominated for more things because she's a really good cinematographer. Um, I think she does a good job here. Um, the the music is a kind of uh, a reimagining of his 2018 record that he made with Brian Eno called American Utopia. It kind of forms the foundation of of what's happening here. Um, but he's like I said, he's added some some David Byrne greatest hits, some Talking Heads stuff, some solo stuff um, from all different um, eras of of the David Byrne experience, and he's kind of linked them two ways: one by this kind of spoken word, um, you know, these spoken word intercuts, or the the music is intercut with these spoken word pieces about connectivity and like what makes Babies us are people smarter than us. Babies are smarter than us, that's, and like the you know, the TV and all this other stuff. There's some political stuff in there that we'll get into. And then the other thing that's interesting about this is that the whole band is on stage. Um, and it includes many percussionists. It includes uh, a guitar player and um, a bass player and a keyboard player who I kept looking. They didn't show the keyboard player enough because I wanted to see how his keyboard was powered. Like, I wanted to see if he was carrying around, like, a battery. Um, but it was interesting that the key... And a couple Ds in there. Yeah, the keyboard player was never... Um, remember there was that one song when everyone started on the ground mm-hmm. and it was the keyboard player was walking around and part of me was like, Oh, I wonder how come he's not on the ground. And I was like, because he can't take this thing off. Like he's just gotta be standing all the time. But so he's like a, he's almost like if we really wanted to, you know, dig into, it, he's like a God figure, just kind of surveying things, <laughs> keeping things in motion. Cause the keyboard's always going except for a couple of tunes. Um, you know, it's getting, it's getting really, um, it's critically lauded, uh, in you know, kind of every respect, um, 
I really liked it. I had some things that I, I want to say about it, but I think do, we think... do we think this gets a, gets in there as a documentary? I don't think so, right? Well, I think so. I think documentary would be the place, because I think it's very specifically a document but and it, not a... Is it a documentary? Like I don't know. Really? Maybe. Does it matter? I don't know. Not really. I don't know. Um, I liked it. I had some things to say about it, you know, on a micro level, but it, um, the songs were awesome. The band is awesome. It's a good. It's a good feeling when you're watching it. I think it's a little long, um, but I think it's cool. I think it's a cool thing. Yeah. No, I, I find it enjoy uh, very enjoyable myself. I think it kind of very much pales in comparison to Stop Making Sense. Um, but you know, that's a pretty hard ladder to climb for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I I think has a actual filmed production in terms of the work that Spike Lee's doing here and capturing the moment in the way he does it works really well mm-hmm. um, I think the actual production itself is over like the, the staged Broadway production is overproduced at times and mm-hmm. becomes distracting mm-hmm. to the music but in you know as I said with the Hamilton aspect I want to focus more on the film and less on the production um, I think has has a film moment in time spike lee does does pretty incredible work on this yeah i mean the hamilton thing i think is is very obvious because now it's a thing that's happening um it's just happening now because of the pandemic so filmed versions of things which i were planned to be filmed and were filmed and we're going to be turned into movies um so amazon has what the constitution means to me that premiered this weekend too that i haven't gotten a chance to watch yet um but uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about Hamilton a lot when I was watching this, and I think that Hamilton, or that this movie, in a lot of ways, is a little more successful than Hamilton because when Hamilton, um, when you saw everything happening, so Hamilton, one of the joys that everyone said about Hamilton was you get to see everything close up, and one of the reasons you had to see everything close up is because you couldn't take in the whole, you couldn't take in the whole stage at once. You know what I mean? If they had to pull back enough that you get the whole stage, and you'd miss a ton of stuff going on in the back, you'd miss some facial expressions. It would be like an actual theater experience if you were sitting in like the mezzanine or the the like the rear orchestra or something like that. Um, this one, so when it looks when there's a lot of stuff going on, it looks super chaotic on stage for Hamilton to the point where even if it doesn't look chaotic on stage, the camera is cutting so much that it becomes chaotic. This one I think was interesting in that they harnessed the chaos a little bit. There's a lot of there's a, a live band feel to a lot of it so you know the musicians would kind of congregate in a couple of times and they'd smile and they'd like talk to each other and it was it was a it was a more organic feeling experience and to that end i think it was intended to be filmed or hamilton was never intended to be filmed which i think explains the the um the square stage you know i mean they weren't worried about people seeing it like on from all angles it's like this really deep square stage so they could do a lot of depth of field stuff um with the filming, and I think it's I think it's interesting. I think they do a lot of interesting stuff. I think the the um, uh, what is it? I'm I should watch TV. I think is a really interesting staging. Um, they do some interesting lighting stuff for a couple of things. Um, it's exciting when it's when it's doing its thing. I just think he stops doing his thing, or the band stops doing their thing. Um, after his his um, lecture about voting. Um, I think his fan, his audience interaction is not as valuable as as I would want it to be. He doesn't say any, he doesn't do really anything really interesting with the audience. So he's like uses them to describe percentages, but that's that's it. And one time when someone mentions something to him, one time someone yells something to him, and he's just like, "Hey, okay," like that's it. There's no like 
there's no interaction here, yeah. but he does stop to use the audience and point things out, and there's some lighting cues. Um, Which has always kind of been a David Byrne thing. Like, he's never so. been a major audience engagement guy. He's kind of been, like, set in his way Well, that's why I in think, terms of his production. I think the, the opening, I think the, here, the opening of Here with the Brain, I think, is awesome. I really loved that thing, and I had a lot of, I had really high hopes going into that, and especially because of the next couple of, thi- of, of spoken things after that were very focused on that the 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 abstract idea of connectivity and then it kind of veers into the election thing um which again i'm on the right i i'm on his side of that so in a way i don't mind but it just took a long time and it didn't tie really well into like the the um the overall narrative of what he was supposed to be doing on stage um as well as i think the janelle monet song um hell you tom about which i hate saying but maybe I shouldn't hate saying it. It's just a, it's a mouthful. It doesn't feel good to like speak it. I think it's more of a sung sound. Um, but I'm not going to sing it either. That worked better from a connectivity standpoint and was was amazing. And that's why you hire Spike Lee. You hire, hire Spike Lee for his energy. You hire Spike Lee for his like inventiveness. You also hire him to make sure that that sequence goes fucking perfectly, and it fucking did. Um, but yeah, so there's that just just that middle sequence where he's telling me to vote, and I'm just like, oh, I'm gonna vote. Don't worry about it. Like, just keep doing your thing. Make this more of a, make this mean more than just you know you should vote. Mm-hmm. That's that was my only real kind of uh, negative feeling about it was like keep the momentum of the art piece going rather than stopping to tell people to vote. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's like a nitpick, but yeah. Um... No, I think I think that's fair. I do think it's kind of hollow in that way in terms of like what it's trying to do, but in terms of it has a music piece, I think it it, it works quite well. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I was expected. I was kind of expecting to be blown away by it. Instead, I was just kind of like, "Oh, this, this is good." But it maybe that's expectations. And that's maybe our problem is that we we both sat down, I think, expecting to be have our asses blown off, and it was like that was good. Yeah, I didn't expect End of it, sentence. Yeah, and I didn't expect it to reach the levels of stop making sense, but I expected it to kind of like get halfway there and it kind of kind of didn't. <sighs> yeah, kind of it, it, that's a it, it 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 like seemed like it was going to it seemed like it was going to be something totally different and then it just kind of it just kind of wasn't. Yeah. And in the end you felt good, but you didn't feel transformed. It wasn't a transcendent experience except for in a couple of different spots. Yeah, there was a bit of like tiredness to it, it seemed like. By the not, the, not, not by his age. I'm not saying that because of his age. I'm just saying that from um kind of you know, he's been doing this for forty years, so the last I think third of it was pretty slow. Mm. It felt pretty I mean I think he they slowed it down, but it felt a little exhausted. Yeah. Um that's I mean when I was watching it I was like I would I would love for them to cut twenty minutes out of this thing. I mean, it's got, like, they play, like, 20-something songs. It doesn't have to be a full concert. You can, like, let us off the hook with, like, 18 songs or 17 songs or something. Mm, yeah, you know what I mean? Um, for sure. But, I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm going to go out on a limb here, Mario. Um, talk about When you talk about hollowness, I don't know how you feel about this next movie. Um, but, like, hollow feeling is something that, oh, like, occurred to me a little bit. Did you have anything else you wanted to do with American Utopia? No, I think you kind of tell, like, (laughs) I didn't have much to say about American Utopia. But I feel, Um, we both like it. Yeah. It's just, it's good. If you're a David Byrne guy, like, I am a David Byrne guy. I like David Byrne. I like talking heads. It's going to work, but it's not going to, 
blow your mind. The, the hollowness. Yeah. It's in, which I think transitions well. Transitions well into uh, the main film of discussion, the one we joke about at some point in time about reviewing. <laughs> I don't know if we cut that out of the podcast last week when we're doing this this week. Mm, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the new <laughs> Aaron Sorkin film based on the, what was it, 1969? Trial. Um, Trial of the Chicago, the trial of the Chicago Seven. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. Well, they're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? <laughs> Holy shit. You all right? No words until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. Uh, after the Democrats stole the 1968 nomination from Eugene McCarthy, <laughs> um, there, you know, during that time, there was a, a little bit of a scuffle in Chicago when that piece of shit Richard Daly, may he burn in hell. <laughs> I think he is. Fuck Richard Daly. Um, decided to, you know, live the Dixiecrat in the North lifestyle and beat the shit out of a bunch of peaceful protesters. Um, leading to a trial of eight different people, seven of which were, were organized protesters, one of which was Bobby Seale, um, who was not a protester. He was just delivered. If I remember right, he really was only there for a few hours, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know too much of the history of this. Uh, this film details kind of just the, the trial of these eight men um, as they face down the wrath of Dracula. <laughs> And, no, it's the guy, and the guy from Fifty Fifty. Yeah. Um. You know, there's we jump back and forth in time between various courtroom proceedings. The same thing happens over and over again. Mm -hmm. We jump back in time to seeing the lead into the um, demonstration at the 1968 convention and the eventual repercussions that led to the riot mm -hmm. um you know they get convicted and uh but they win but they win because you know eddie redmayne reads a bunch of names the end um I, the yeah, reason i say this in this way is because this film is so flaccid of a production um it's like a tv show yeah it, it feels like the worst parts of the order of Law and Order. Um, without any sort of, of real moments of stakes, without any of the well, except quote unquote clever dialogue that Aaron Sork never has, which he doesn't because he fucking sucks. Um, we'll, get, we'll get into that. I think this is exceptionally well acted. Ooh, yeah. It's, like these guys, everybody in this film got fucked over by Aaron Sorkin's horrible direction. Uh, horrible screenwriting. Yeah, I think you and me are the only you know ones that feel that way. Yeah, and I'm going to say this. Eddie Redmayne's fucking awesome in this. He's really good. And I 
I, I don't know if we talked about this in the podcast. I fucking hate Eddie Redmayne. Me too, buddy. And so Eddie, I just watched this. I was like, what is going on? I, I really want to interject here. I've listened to a several podcasts about this and read several articles about this movie. Every single reviewer, talking head, pundit, whatever, film critic, says the same thing about Eddie Redmayne. I don't like Eddie Redmayne. He's pretty good in this. Yeah. Um, ev- everyone's doing incredible work. Um, Yahai Abdul Manteen, who has very little to do, does does great work in this. Uh, yeah, there's there's nobody falling down except for Aaron Sorkin, who fucking can't even stand up. I think it's enough with the Aaron Sorkin directing stuff experiment. Uh, but here's the thing: is that Molly's game feels like a movie. Mm-hmm. This feels like a TV show, which is odd because it wasn't made for Netflix. Netflix yeah. picked it up because of the pandemic. This is going to show in theaters. This is like a almost like a staged production of like a play. Yeah, I don't understand the need to have legitimately one set. I mean, even though we go to several different places in flashbacks and um, the kind of headquarters for the defense and the opening, that nonsense opening with the new attorney general. Like, we're just in that courtroom for 75% of it. Yeah. Um, And as good as the back and forth between Frank Langella and Mark Rylance is throughout this film, which Mm -hmm. is fucking great. Like, on stage, that would have... This would be amazing. Mm-hmm. It's boring as fuck as a film. And well, especially when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's kind of like doesn't know what he's supposed to be. Which, which I think the yeah. one performance that doesn't necessarily work for me is that he's like, am I supposed to be a villain or am I just doing... Like there's, there's really no... And this is a, a fault of the screenplay is the fact that like there's there's really no characterization, characterization given to him. Like the, the outlying characters around... You know the the, the seven and, and seal um, have one mode, but Schultz and Schultz is supposed to have some sort of layers. Schultz uh, Schultz and to a very small degree, like Daphne O'Connor, Caitlin um, Fitzgerald's character, is supposed to have like some degree of complexity, but there's nothing there. But here's a, exactly the script doesn't give them anything. And I'm, I'm not gonna get. I, I, maybe I'll get fired up. I don't know. We'll have to see how this conversation goes. Can you get fired up about this movie? I can get fired up about why Aaron Sorkin thinks that this is a good job. It's like, gonna oh, fire me he, up. Or it'll fire me up when the Oscar nominations come out and Aaron Sorkin gets nominated for best director, best screenplay. There's four acting nominations. He gets nominated for best picture. Gets nominated for best editing because there's because they use stock footage as well as movie footage. You know what's gonna you know what's gonna fire me up. When Judas and the Black Messiah comes out, and people are like, oh, right, Trial of the Chicago 7 sucked. Well, so the, here's the thing, Mario, though. Uh, maybe I'll tackle that, the point that we were making first, and then I'll like, go into my other thing. He says, Aaron Sorkin's trying to get Schultz, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Schultz, Gordon Schultz, to wear two fucking hats simultaneously. So he's like, he seems empathetic instantaneously. Not empathetic in the sense that, like, so he's like, oh, I don't know if we could get him. I don't know if we can get an indictment. Because right after he says he doesn't know if he can get an indictment and he feels all uncomfortable, he just says that he doesn't like any of these people. Like, yeah. he says to his boss, like, I think they're this, and I think they're this, and I think they're this, and I think they're this. So you don't really have any empathy for them. But your face 
his face and his countenance and his body language is just like, I don't really like this. And it doesn't really seem like it has anything to do with whether or not he can win. It makes it his, he plays it, and I think Aaron Sorkin wants him to play it like, oh, these guys have a point. Or this is making me uncomfortable, like, because these guys are on the right side of history and I'm here. Yeah, the way Which I isn't kinda, true! Yeah, the way I read it, like, was he was trying to make, like, Schultz be like, oh, I have to do this for my job. But that's never, like, pursued at all. That's good. Um, but the same, that's the same thing with, um, what's her name? Uh, Daphne O'Connor, yeah. Caitlin Fitzgerald's character. She's, she's testifying on the stand in the like for the prosecution that this is happening you know what i mean and she's answering all the questions like no they weren't doing this no they weren't doing this no they weren't doing this but yes they were trying to start a riot but then like at the end she's sitting there and she's like hmm, she's these the one, guys the one that stays yeah. what the fuck is that about yeah like i suppose she has a job to do but is this movie just about people who did their job like if that's the case say it if, show it well if that's the case then why would we feel se- how are we supposed to feel like the cops are villains how are we supposed to feel like Franklin Jell's villain Franklin Jell-a fucking sucks not as an actor but his character like, yeah, he's great in this he's great but he like but everybody he, is great right. in and this, I almost kind of want to go by shot mind by shot yeah. because everyone I've never seen a movie where everybody nails what they're supposed to, what they're asked to do yeah even if what they're asked to do is bullshit mm-hmm. I've never seen a movie that sucks so much have such like like this movie's gonna have this movie's gonna show up in my my awards list for acting. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna show up for anything else. Well, a place that it's definitely not gonna show up is fucking score. Oh, there's this a score. To this score is in in yeah. All those times when the riots were happening. Oh God! Right. Oh, all wow. that fake like explosions in the sky meets like '60s psychedelia music. You know what it sounds like? You know what? Fucking. Horrible. You know what it reminded me of, and that's why I didn't notice it. Like the Ken Burns 1960s yeah! counter protest, like yep. like you know that very low grade score expectation you have for those yep. types of movies. That's what it reminded me of. It is awful, awful. And then the, I mean, the most surprising thing to me. Gotta is, look up who who did the casting in this though, right? Because like, shot them out. That's why we need to do the the Oscars for casting directors. That's a thing in Oscar we need. The other surprising thing is that Fade on Papa Michael is a person that I like as a cinematographer. Okay. He, you know, he's done Alexander Payne's movies. He's done James Mangold's movies. This movie is so flat. It is drained of all its color. And then it has this also, but it has this weird, these weird moments where they're blowing out like behind Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong, like a Spielberg movie or something. Like the sun is just all of a sudden like you know, beating down on everybody. Francine Maisler. She did a good job. She Well, she did the casting for 12 Years a Slave, The Revenant, oh. Birdman, The Big Short. So she knows she's what the a fuck... Gen- she's, she's a fucking genius. Yeah, she knows yeah. what the fuck she's doing. Um, Widows. All the, oh, all the ancillary aspects of not, this movie. Does this woman not have, 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 give this person an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, or give her a high five at least. Um... All the ancillary parts of this movie that aren't the directing or aren't the acting are terrible. And it's to the point where I said to my wife after we finished watching this movie, she was like, I really liked it. And I was like, I really liked it too. I also think it stinks. Like, how can a movie that I really enjoyed watching make me feel like I hate it? Because that's kind of where I was at the end of this movie. Like, that was terrible. And I want to see Sacha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman forever. Yeah, no, I want to see I all want to see Jeremy Strong and Sasha Baron Cohen playing those roles 
and like a buddy movie or something like an alternate history buddy movie you know what I mean they're so fucking good Mark Rylands is so good even stupid Eddie Redmayne is like when he first starts talking I was like that sounds different that's not usually what Eddie Redmayne is supposed to do. Yeah. He's supposed to be like wayfish and like all shrunken and shit like that. And there's times when I thought he seemed like he was doing that. Alex Sharp is great in this too. Which was Alex Sharp. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like everyone, uh, John Carroll Lynch. Ben who's Shankman. Not, who's not really given a lot to do. But John, Car- but having John Carroll Lynch there made me feel good. Because yeah. I fucking love John Carroll Lynch. Well, nobody dislikes John Carroll Lynch. No, but like when, when Drew you... Drew Carey's brother. But when you saw him... Is he Drew Carey's brother? He's identifies as a man in Drew Carey's show, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Drew Carey's brother. That's the 90s, Mario. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember. If he identifies <laughs> as a man or a woman. Um, when you see him, you're like, oh, I'm in good hands. You know what I mean? Like, all, a lot of these actors, you're like, I know I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, these guys aren't going to let me down. Michael Keaton in his, like, five oh, minutes is great. It's great. But that's why it was up to Aaron Sorkin to do a good job and, like, support this yeah. stuff. And he just fucking did it. And didn't, like, fucking... Didn't this trial have, like, Richard Daly on the stage and, like, Norman Mailer and all these yeah. guys come in? Where the, And, like, musicians and all that trying to play their music. Where the fuck is any of that? Like, you if you're going to have something, like, you, give us that. You've got to cast the Norman Mailer role. Somebody's got to play Norman Mailer. That guy was fucking crazy. There's no way he said anything normal on that witness stand. Who plays Norman Mailer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't even have an idea. Like Paul G. No, not Paul Giamatti. It doesn't work. That's like a... They could get Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I could do it. He's, they're not bug-eyed enough, though. That era Norman Mailer was, like, really intense. And he was... Like, oh, and he would have been... Because he's in his 40s at this point? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe he's a little older than forty. No, he would have been like forty-six. Okay. I think I think Rockwell works in this. I guess so. I don't know. I don't see him as like intense enough. Not like not intense enough from an acting standpoint. Walton Goggins. Walton Goggins is interesting. That that's an interesting one, Mario. I feel like we should just spend the next like thirty minutes like thinking about who should play Norman Mailer in his cameo appearance here. Francine would have known exactly who to cast as Norman Mailer. She fucking would have. She would have had that. She had that in her pocket the whole time if Sorkin wanted to go there. Yeah, it's it's just a bummer. Like it's a bummer of a movie because it's so well acted that I think people are loving this movie because of its performances and not realizing that, you know. If the cast doesn't work, this movie is fucking garbage. That it's... I said that exact same thing to my wife. It's not even like... I'm going to put it in the same... I I think even Adam McKay is able to do better work in his garbage fucking movies than this. Well, they have more personality. Yeah, exactly. Because there's there's at least something going on in the screenplays. I wouldn't... So I walked out of Vice. I wouldn't have walked out of this movie. This movie is not garbage. Hmm. It is enjoyable to watch for a couple of reasons. Um... Like, you know, acting, you know, uh, there's, there's, the script overall is pretty bad. There's a couple of good moments, though. There's a couple of good interactions. Um, like what? Um, I think some of the Abby Hoff, I think uh, I, the only part I liked is, like, the interaction between, not to cut you off, but between Abby yeah, yeah. and um, Hayden when he says, like, I read the Port Huron thing. And, mm-hmm. like, he says, like, oh, the possessive. 
pronouns and whatnot. That's the only part of it I was like, oh, okay. Like, there's a bit of a snap there. And, like, I fucking hate Aaron Sorkin's snappy dialogue. I think it's ridiculous and... Me too. It, it's it's unnatural. I'm not uh, a people Sorkin love guy. It, but people don't talk like that in real life. I actually and don't he even... tries to present real life right. things, and that doesn't work when people don't actually speak like that. So here's ever. the thing: I don't the the people don't talk like that thing. I don't I don't worry about that stuff. Like it's not natural, but it is. When he's trying to do what he's trying to do, though. Well, I just I think it's all it's always so pretentious. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's I mean that's my feeling. It never feels like nobody is the political Gilmore Girls. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And the Gilmore Girls was more entertaining. No, that's not true. I just like Lauren Graham. Flip the table. <laughs> I liked her in the original Bad Santa. Well, yeah, bad, but Bad Santa is fucking great. Yeah. Never saw the second one. I didn't either. But yeah, no. Um, no, this is just it's it's a. It's weirdly both. It's something I suggest people watch just because of how well listen solid everyone's working in this. They're going to watch something else, so if I can distract somebody from watching like Hubie Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> or like some other shit, like shitty Netflix like waste of time. You know what I mean? Like one of their half hour documentaries about like. Shoes or some shit like that. I mean, Netflix is just pumping out garbage content left and right. Yeah, Netflix, watch this. How is Netflix getting so? Here's my confusion right now. How much money does Netflix have? Because Netflix is literally releasing a new movie or TV series that they produced. Well, I guess Trash, how much Chicago they, Seven they didn't produce, but like they're they producing pay, something. Yeah. Every, like Haunting of Bly Manor just came out. The new. Um, how much money do Mike they Flanagan? have? They have no money. They have zero money. Oh, they just. They, yeah, I think they're those. carrying around like massive amounts of, of debt. But the idea is that... You know why that is? Money isn't real. Money's not real. Yeah, People absolutely. That. So, the, yeah, the, the every, like shareholders can make money. They can, Netflix can turn a profit and simultaneously be a near constant. Money is a fictitious debt. thing that we all believe in. And that's why a federal deficit's not a real thing. Well, I think people are kind of starting to come around to the idea that the federal deficit isn't real. I think the New York Times ran on like a uh, a story about the deficit that was on like page eight of the like the C section, where they were just like, "Oh, the deficit climbs to this highest like it's ever been," and everyone was like, "Nobody fucking cares." Talk to any give of my, me twelve hundred dollars. Talk to any of my male friends about that, and they lose their shit. And I'm like, "Why?" Because like, they're all like fiscally conservative. Um, what does that even mean? I mean, I don't really want to talk about this. But what the <laughs> That even mean like, anymore? Well, we gotta, we gotta balance things. Why? Like, the government doesn't work that way. The government doesn't have money. The government creates money just based on a system to make everyone agree to a certain system of agreements and bartering. Well, what do they think is gonna happen the if they balance the budget? Just controls raw goods and future production. That's all money means in in terms of a government thing. The government. The, especially when it's at a level of the United States. We're not fucking Greece that needs to rely on... I like how we're just going on politics, but fuck it. We got 13 days. I just had a dream last night about the fucking election. I've had that for three nights in a row. <gasps> Biden won every time. So good. He lost Different Texas. states? He won. Yeah. He won by over 400 electoral votes last time. And in the dream, I go, I actually go like, he had to have won Texas to have done that. And he lost Texas. And I was like, weird. And I had to look at what states he won to do it. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Um, but I don't... Also, my, my electoral map, I think, somewhat made sense in the dream. Well, uh, 538 has published, they have on their thing, like... Out of 100. Five, 
88 out of 100, but they have um they have a bunch of different electoral maps. And there's like all different like, you know, it doesn't matter. But anyways, yeah. So People, the, the, America doesn't need money. America literally just controls production because of it has a population, a massive population and massive amounts of raw goods. Well, that's the Fuck weird, yourself about the deficit. The weird thing about America. get on this topic. Okay, so we're talking about this movie. The weird thing about this about America is that we choose what we want to believe in based on nothing. So at some point in the last... Like a Vietnam War. Yeah. yeah. Or that, the, that there's a reason for us to be fighting in Vietnam. That these guys did anything and, like, really to start a riot. But I think the national debt's kind of the same way in the sense that at some point in the last 50 years, somebody was like, we got to get the national debt down. And then somebody else wrote, like, national debt is something. And then everyone was just like, oh, no, debt is bad. And, and to show that the Democrats aren't the great guys look at 1968 for example kennedy wins fucking caucuses but kennedy was going to win that nomination kennedy was going to be president he was going to win the nomination yeah sure whatever but eugene mccarthy wins all the primaries like eugene mccarthy wipes the floor with kennedy in the primaries i accept whatever because of more caucuses kennedy wins humphrey's not a fucking figure kennedy gets you know sirhan sirhan um Eugene McCarthy's your fucking nominee. And I think Eugene McCarthy beats Nixon. Probably not. Eugene McCarthy beats Nixon. He's, he gets better than Hubert Humphrey. Maybe, but, but Nixon was a national figure at that point. Yeah, sure, but Eugene McCarthy was like... My point being, the Democrats were like, fuck, no, we're not going to do Eugene McCarthy. Sure, well, that's what I mean. I mean, so there's a point where, and it still is, but there's a point... You know, like, for example, I won't, I won't mention it, but, you know, like... Even though everyone vote fucking Biden, Buttigieg and um, Klobuchar the day before Super Tuesday going like, yeah, we back out. Still vote Biden. And then primary oh, I his see what ass. You mean. Well, first vote Bi- elect Biden, destroy the Republican Party, like, mutilate him. And then, not physically, emotionally, and then... Tear the Democratic Party in half. Um, I don't want to talk about this, but Aaron Sorkin would agree with you. Yeah, but he would say it in a shitty way. Well, he would say but it Francine like... Francine would cast great actors for anything. She would... Even though these are my words, she would make my words... She somehow would create a script. I... I'm interested. I want, I want to hear where this goes. I want, I want her to be a filmmaker now. If you're that good of a casting director... You gotta have some talent. She's gotta know what light would look good behind like some such thing. No, like but not, a, a but staging, you know, a blocking. She, she might not, but you know what she knows how to do? Go like, you know who I want for this? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What was her name again? I have to look it up again. Francine. Francine Maisler. Francine Maisler. If there's one thing to learn about Trial of Chicago 7, she fucking rocks. And she's only. 59. Good. Francine Mazer, we salute you. Yeah. All right, so let's... Uh, you will get a special award at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give her a award. My favorite, in our top ten moments. It's she hasn't even won an Emmy. That's weird. She's only been nominated twice. Um, all right, so let's... I don't know who... I think I went first. Yeah, let's yeah, go yeah. to my uh, number 14. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're back. 
you de- you're deleting it, aren't you? No, I didn't delete it. I left okay. it. Okay, good. Um, I don't really, yeah, I don't really know where we are now. Well, I suppose you just said before that, it, you know, when I paused for one minute that we were on a lot of drugs, which I suppose is a good segue that didn't get into this podcast, <laughs> um, for what our, my number 14 is. Um, uh, yeah, it's a movie we talked about before. Do you remember what number it was on yours? On I your don't list? remember ah, off the top of my head. I couldn't find my notes before and I could look it up real uh, quick. I can, I can, Hold I can, on, I got, I, I'll just bring up the website. Oh, we're so bad at podcasting. Oh man, we've been doing this for ages too. We just can't. We can't get it together. We can't get it together. Wasn't that far back? No, it's got to be further up, right? It was your. No, 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 no. I want. I want to find it. It was my twenty. Twenty-three. Jesus. Twenty-three. Or, right? Was it? Or maybe I edited some stuff before. Yeah, it was twenty-three. Yeah. Re- I re- thought it was a long like, time ago. It's yeah. It's twenty-twenty, man. Oh my god! I fucking... We also like have a bunch of wait. What? No, yeah, that was after we came back from our our break. Yes, 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 it was. Yeah, so yeah, that's a long. That feels like months ago, like years. We ago. did it here. Yeah, yeah, because we a... came back for that was the, the Raging Bull episode. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Maybe it was because we didn't talk about it much because it was going to be on my maybe, list. Maybe it was just one yeah, of those that's why. like. That's why. My number 23 is Raging Bull and Back to Tom. Um, so, did we just say what the name of the movie is? Did we say it? I feel like we said it. But if we didn't say it, uh, my number 14 is Requiem for a Dream. Purple in the morning. Blue in the afternoon. Orange in the evening. Just like that. One, two, three, four. Requiem for a Dream is the second film by Darren Aronofsky after Pi. Um, it is uh, stars Jared Leto, Harry Goldfarb. He has a, a little bit of a drug problem. He's got a friend. His name is Tyrone. It's played by Marlon Wayans, which at the time when I saw it was just like, what the fuck is happening here? Everyone saw that, thought that. Because I didn't, you know, it was one of those things where like I knew about the movie, but I didn't know that there was going to be a Wayans brother in it. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, uh, he, Harry steals his mother's TV, uh, frequently so he can buy heroin. Uh, his mother's Sarah is played by Ellen Burstyn. Uh, and we'll get to the Oscar thing later. Let's just ignore it. Um, for now, uh, we've Harry, talked about the Oscar thing multiple times. Well, I'm sure it's going to come up. Um, Harry's got a girlfriend named Marion played by Jennifer Connelly, which is watching this movie now and like focusing on the Jennifer Connelly if you do a viewing of this movie and you focus on Jennifer Connelly and then you think about where Jennifer Connelly would be like a couple years from now it doesn't even really seem like the same actress 
it seems like she's been inhabited by a spirit or something. He like to make a beautiful mind. They don't even look the same. They mm. do look the same, but they don't feel the same, which is just weird. It was like blowing my mind when I was watching it to do this. Um, but yeah, this movie takes place in Brooklyn, right? Brighton Brooklyn Beach, Brighton Beach, and and it's about scoring drugs and it's about feeling good and it's about trying to get that one thing that you always wanted and you don't have any other way to get it other than to do this this thing that you probably shouldn't do and then that thing that you probably shouldn't do fucking eats your life. Um, it is not a feel-good movie. Um, I've, I, I've, I've heard people kind of describe it as, as difficult to watch or like harrowing. Um, but for me, Mario, and, and this is kind of... It's interesting to track for me. I think this is the movie that made me kind of love movies. So there's an interesting turn in the sense that, like I talked about, like American Beauty and Raging Bull, and those movies taught me how to appreciate movies and to think about movies and to almost like to read a movie. But when I went to the York Square Cinema in uh, 2000 to see this film, York Square Cinema in New Haven, um, which is no longer there, it is now um, it's a store called Campus Customs, which is next to an Urban Outfitters. Uh, which is next to, you know, an Apple store. And uh, it's just a fucking disaster down there on Broadway in New Haven now. But back uh, in 2000, it was the coolest place in the whole world because you'd go to Cutler's for a while. Uh, you'd buy a record, you know, you'd get yourself some, like, bootleg CDs or something or hard to find, import CDs. And then you'd go to, you'd go to the Yale bookstore where the whole second... You know how, like, the second floor of the Yale bookstore... You know, you walk up, you walk into the Yale bookstore, and you walk up the stairs, mm. and half of it is clothes and Yale shit, and half of it is books. Yeah. Well, back in the day, it used to all be books, and they literally had every single book you could ever want ever, and it was amazing. So you'd spend just like hours and hours and hours at these couple locations, and then you'd end your day at the York Square Cinema, seeing literally anything that was playing at York Square. And the theaters were small, and they were skinny, and they were dirty, and it was perfect for watching a movie like Requiem for a Dream. I mean, imagine watching Requiem for a Dream, which is got like a, a kind of run-down visual palette anyway, but on like a run-down screen. You know what I mean? Like a screen that looked like it was from, you know... Maybe like, you know, when Hubert Selby like wrote this book or something like that. It's like an old screen. It's yeah. got this old feeling. And there was stuff happening in this movie that transcended everything I thought I knew about what a movie was going to do. So right from the beginning, you get the split screens. You know, I had never seen the split screen thing before. It works so well in here. And it's such an easy thing to focus on. But like when you kind of don't know what it's coming, when you don't know what's coming... It's, 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 I don't know, kind of mesmerizing and it's kind of throws you off balance. You're like, oh, I have to focus on these two things and what's happening over here. What's happening over here. And what does this mean? Because I was, you know, I was taught to look for what stuff means, but then you have the, 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 the shooting up scenes, you know what I mean? With all the, the fast cutting and then always ending in some extended kind of sequence that shows like what the, the shit is doing to them. Um, the movie fucking blew my mind. Um, and I say that, I feel like I say that all the time. And I think in a lot of ways it's like hyperbole and maybe it blew like a facet of my mind. I could not get this movie out of my head 
when I saw it for a long fucking time. And I always know when a movie, I can't get a movie out of my head when I go by the soundtrack, like immediately, because I want to kind of keep reliving the experience of the film over and over and over and over and over again. And now I can kind of separate it. So like I bought the, you know, the Eternity's Gate soundtrack almost instantaneously. And now when I think of it, I kind of think of, when I listen to it, I kind of think of Eternity's Gate, but I've mostly kind of absorbed it into my existence and it's just this music and whatever. Um, the Kronos Quartet playing Clint, Mansell, Clint Mansell's score, uh, which is just one of the great sc- scores, um, probably underrated because everything is underrated if it's not considered like some kind of classic shit, but it does literally everything you'd want to do. Um, it, it does. It, it conveys emo- doesn't convey any emotions. It conveys a kind of subtext to all the emotions that are like happening on screen. So even when people are smiling or they're trying to have a good time or everything feels like they're high, there's that like that great repetitive like grinding tone when they're when they're really fucked up you know what i mean that sounds like a kind of like a piano like a really distorted piano but like really slowed down you know when, when harry and marion are like larry laying on the ground and they're both like staring up in the air um uh, it's just perfect it's fucking perfect it's a sen- so and all that stuff led to the fact that like this movie for me was like a sensory experience and up until then like raging bull kind of did it a little bit but raging bull did a lot of like I think normal movie stuff, slow motion stuff, fucking with perspective. You know what I mean? It's like some of the some of the sound design stuff in that movie was um, crazy, in the sense that like, wow, that's how they did that. You know, it's broken glass and it's a combination of all these screams is throwing a punch. But it didn't convey the kind of first person experience of what it might mean to like shoot drugs or to like take pills or to just be fucked up on something like one of the scenes that i always that always like haunts me and i'm sure it does to everybody else too but when when sarah is really messed up like when she's the first time she sees the fridge move mm. and then she goes to the doctors and you have that fisheye lens kind of behind her and she just like hears things and she's looking and her face is all contorted and she's all thin and she's really starting to spiral um you're not. You don't feel like you're just sitting in a movie theater. You feel like you're kind of in somebody's head. And is is what is? Why is that? Is it the fisheye view? Is it? Does the fisheye kind of insinuate like a per a, a, a first person perspective that like you're watching it? Is it like the sound design where everything's really slow, but the doctor's moving really fast? Or is it like what is it? It's hard to say. And this it happens through this whole movie. There's a million things happening in every shot, even if you don't necessarily notice that there's a million things happening in every shot. Well I think it's I think it's a solid like lock in of various different techniques and it really works as like a tapestry of a film. Like speaking to those moments, um it has like a Gilliam esque nature to it in the sense that Yeah, oh yeah. There's uh a lot of not artifice. There, there's a lot of purposeful action being done, and a lot of direction, and and a lot of technique. Mm-hmm. But all of it feels very genuine yeah. to what is being presented. Um, and you know, then you get like those scenes that are hallmark to you know the kind of Fincher esque or mid '90s, um, and just various like music videos of mm-hmm. that generation in terms of like when they're shooting up drugs, or um, the oh god, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, the guy directed Run Lola Will Run. Um, oh yeah, what's his name? Like I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, 
that but, kind of that perspective shot, like when especially when they're running. Yep. Um, Tom Teeker. Um, you know, like how it's a steady cam locked into the actor, uh, like those sorts of things. Like he, he's taking so many different techniques to kind of create this thing, which is an amalgamation. Well, that stuff and, is like Jonathan Dayton and Valerie, Valerie Ferris stuff. Yeah. Because like the Smashing Pumpkins were doing that in like the nineteen seventy nine music video, the the you know, the attached camera perspective. You know where the you know the camera and the person would move at the same time. Is that before? That was Run Lola Runs '98, yeah. So oh, 1979 okay. would have been a little earlier. Okay. I mean, and maybe someone was even doing it before that too. But yeah, I remember, just remember that was the first time I saw it, and that was the first time that like it. Um, that was the first time for me that it really meant something, and they were doing something very specific with it. It was it was not necessarily meant to be like a cool shot. It was, and it was not necessarily meant to show, like, the perspective of of that person. It was put in there to convey a specific emotion you know what i mean or to have a sensory stand-in for what that emotion is going to be now for all of like the stuff that darren aronofsky would do after this this is the movie for me that where all of those it's like a show don't tell movie mm-hmm. you know what i mean like he's uh, he's not telling us anything he's always showing us everything which makes the emotions of the movie so fucking complicated did you see this in 2000? No, I saw this much later. Like around... Um, I think like 2005 I finally saw it. Mm-hmm. Sometime um, in college. Just like on, on DVD? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... So one of the things that this movie kind of really stands in for me, or stands for for me, it's like a pure film experience. Like whatever that is supposed to be. Whatever, when people talk about going to the theater, it's I, when I think about what I'm going to miss... It's like seeing movies like this for the first time in a theater. Really big, but like the context is familiar but imperfect. But like it's it there's it adds so much value to that that imperfection, you know what I mean? That like it's not a super clear picture. Um you know, there's there who the, like the theater's like weird. It kind of does this kind of like big dip. Um in the middle, it's a little bit like the Cine One Two Three Four theaters, where there's mm. just like you know, it seems like they're curved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. For some reason, um, and all that stuff comes together because this was like a perfect sensory experience. It did all the things. So one of the things I think that is interesting is you talk about like the music video stuff and like you know they were doing a lot of that. They were, but this movie um, surpasses all of those techniques. I think because of the payoff of everything. The payoff is always perfect. So, like, every time someone shoots up or takes another pill or smokes something or whatever, it doesn't just end in, like, oh, we're so fucking high now, man. You know what I mean? Mm. There's a fucking great cinema thing just waiting for you. You know what I mean? And whether it's, like, a crazy angle of a shot with that, like, that beat drop when they're playing with the records, whether it's uh, Harry... You know, waiting for um, Tyrone to get to get back with with his with his piece. You know what I mean? We get a piece that we get a pound of when they get that first piece, and he's like spinning all the records, and he's just walking around. And, you know, he's just looking at all this stuff, um, or even like the Tyrone's flashback scene. You know what I mean? When he's like playing with his like the mirror. Yeah. Because why is there a flashback scene? This just totally genuine, non, like. It doesn't fit with the movie at all, but it also works perfectly. 
um, and puts you it puts you in not I guess maybe the mind, but it also puts you in that room. There's all the stuff that Aronofsky is doing. He's like putting you in there. He's always putting you in there. You're in every single room in this movie. You're watching all the you're watching all the um, Christopher McDonald telethons, which is just does that run all day or like not telethon, but like the advertisements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that just run? I, I assume so. Like like an oh, OxyClean? No, like, it's, it's the only show on the Game Show Network in 1990. I don't think it's not a game show, is it? That's a, no, it's not really a game show. It's like one of those infomercials. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's um. It's intriguing. Like it's definitely an intriguing. It's a movie I, could, I, I do rewatch though, and kind of feel distance from it as, mm. as it goes on. I, I like part. Like I can pull out parts of it. Um, but I guess you're, you're constantly looking kind of for that first impression of it that, you know, um, how everything kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's an interesting film in the sense that like the first time I watched it, everything worked and it just blew me away. And every subsequent time, um, unlike something like the fountain, um, which kind of still maintains some sort of original austerity, um, Mm. I find myself like thinking Requiem's probably his his most solid film of, mm-hmm. of his filmography, but I do feel myself distancing myself from it. I don't have like that same emotional affect that I used to. Well, I think for me, yeah, it's weird because I, I I'm so sensor I'm so so sensually tied into this movie that when I watch it now, I don't feel any distance because I'm watching not like for narrative stuff and not to be surprised by anything I'm watching for like textures of things so like I'm just I'm just kind of staring at like Jennifer Connelly's lips when she goes to have dinner the second time with her therapist you know what I mean and I'm staring at like the food that Sarah when she makes that onion sandwich oh man that fucking onion sandwich it like looks so good it looks so real it's got this fucking cut bread and I think it's like a, cre- a bowl of cream cheese and this big fucking onion and she eats it you can like almost like taste the onion sandwich I'm thinking of like when when he first kind of discovers that scab you know what I mean you yeah. can almost like it's makeup and stuff like that you know what I mean but it seems so real and I, I, it's not one of these things where like I'm tricked into thinking and watching like a documentary. It's not like that. It just has this. He does everything so right. So it's everything, very sensory. Everything has this like really intense texture to it. So you just kind of, even though this movie is so like horrible, you just kind of want to you want to be in it. You know what I mean? You want to so you want to go there, and not that you you want to go there, but you just feel like you could. You're forced there. You're just you're just like you're in that place. Um, you know, even when it gets kind of dreamlike, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, one of the things I, I love that opening sequence for a lot of reasons, but one of them is like some of that, um, like the, you know, the carnival, like that decrepit old roller coaster that they walk past, like the way that sky looks, it's, it's not like a real sky, but it also is like totally the real sky. It's exactly what sky looks like, you know, at that time of day, you know, when you're, you need to get your fix when you're rolling your mom's television down the fucking boardwalk for like the 500th time. Like, that's just what 
that's just what it is. This is just what it feels like. This is just what life was like for these people, which has a kind of documentary quality to it and inspires that kind of attention. Um, and maybe even that kind of empathy at the end of it. You know what I mean? When you, when everyone's kind of curling into the fetal position and stuff like that, um, you feel bad for them. You're not in one of the brilliant things about this movie is that it's kind of judgment free. You know what I mean? Like she, he's not saying that these are bad people or, you know, he's saying that these people have made mistakes, but not that they're terrible or beyond our empathy. And I think that's why they, they have, um, you know, that he has them kind of curl up into that kind of newborn like space. They're going to be reborn as something. Um, it's not going to be any good. <laughs> um, uh, you know, for any of them, but it's gonna be maybe maybe Tyrone. Maybe Tyrone gets out. Probably not. Probably yeah. He's in the south now. Yeah, it's probably not gonna be good. So it's not gonna be good for any of them. I think Marion will convince herself that she's happiest for a little bit. Yeah, I was gonna say, but Marianne that's gonna come. The the down is gonna come way harder for her. Because it's going to last longer. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's interesting, and I, and I really don't mean to interrupt, like just talking about it, I think it's interesting that um, Harry loses an arm, um, but she's going to lose the most. It's just kind of the way that she played it. She's going to lose herself by the end of whatever whatever track that she's on. When she gets to the end of it, there'll be no more of herself left. Yeah. Um, and Sarah kind of goes through that too, but it's like taken from her. Um, and... Tyrone, just to, you know, we could tie it into modern day times, you will be, like, disenfranchised into nothingness, and we'll probably go back to jail for doing absolutely nothing, or we'll get shot in the street somewhere. Um, but yeah, he'll, like, have some of his soul intact, where Marion, like, each of them may have some of their soul intact, while Marion will have none. It's interesting, because I compare this to a book I read recently, Cherry, mm -hmm. um, by Nico Walker, which I don't think is great, um, but it, it tries to dwell into that kind of same cyclic nature of heroin abuse um, and the amount of money you're spending and the kind of desperation you go through yep. and the ways you're feeling. Um, you know, it's written by the guy who was experiencing it, who you mm -hmm. know, went to the army, came back, became a heroin addict after, you know, kind of getting stuck in Oxycontin and then eventually started robbing banks. But there's a certain, like, distance there. Um, and what I like about... What, what I, the thing I do appreciate for a dream is there is no distance. It is it is next to you. It mm -hmm. is you know you're touching. You're you're next to it on the subway, you know, touching it as much as you don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, and like I, I think that's kind of like the reason why it's the film that like everyone says they don't want to watch again is because it is so uncomfortably close. Mm. It's not that it's it's not the subject matter necessarily, but it's the fact that it invades that personal space. Mm. I agree, and it's it makes you. It makes you watch. Like it's not. It's not like one of those things where if if it makes you uncomfortable, it's because the movie is like requiring you that like when you know Marion goes to that apartment, like we all know what's gonna happen, but we're gonna push it all the way so you understand like how this is. So you're just another. You're just another guy at that party. You know what I mean? The angles that they use. Yeah. You're just around that table like screaming at them that's just what, what you're doing and i really I, I i often openly reject the idea that like filmmakers are making you complicit because i don't ever feel complicit like i don't ever feel like i'm i'm um supportive of like what's happening or that like i had anything to do with it well if you're the filmmaker <sighs> mm -hmm. what happens um 
Yeah, I don't know how Darren Aronofsky feels about this movie. Probably loves it. Um, Darren Aronofsky seems like the type that has nothing negative to say about his films. Or, or he's like one of those guys that's like, Noah's the best thing I ever made. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like He's going to like really dig down on Noah. What's the worst movie you ever made? This one. Requiem for a Dream. Just had I just hope it would do better. Or he seems like the type that'd be like, you really gotta watch Pie. Like, that's... It's all been down. Pie is great. In pie 20- is great, but it's like... But it's he seems like the guy was like, you have, you know, the hipster, like... The pie original. is the one. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because I saw Pie before I saw this and I was like, wow, oh, this uh, Darren Aronofsky, great. But it didn't feel like a Darren Aronofsky movie. This feels like a Darren Aronofsky movie. So mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of Darren Aronofsky movies on my list. Um, I still got one to go. Uh... Those movies seem tied to this movie rather than Pi. Um, which I suppose is why it's here and not... Like, Pi's because of Pi's black and whiteness and because of the subject... Like, the kind of obtuse subject matter it deals with. And it's kind of a stand-in for emotions. There's not a lot of um, actual emotions going on in Pi. It's just kind of... It's coolness. There's some cool stuff happening. Um, this is emotions. And it's got one of the all-time great screen performances in like the 21st century and it didn't get recognized yeah it was so good did, i wonder yeah. what his feeling was when he was like he got it like aronofsky explained to him what he's gonna be and he was just like good oh, i want to be a part of the movie but i don't want to be a part of any of that <laughs> um yeah no like we've talked about that enough but it's 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 unfortunate what came of it, but see, can't go back in time and change it. But when I was watching it, I didn't, it felt not unfortunate to me. It felt like a tragedy. It felt like a real like Oscar tragedy, especially when you're watching that like I'm old monologue. Yeah, you're just like, what was everybody thinking? Like, is this just too? But it also cements the it's idea. Too heavy, though. Too. It cement, exactly. It cements the idea of an Oscar movie and how like they're willing to, they're willing to reward things with nominations that like take it take acting to places where like it should go but they give awards to people who represent their brand the best um but yeah that's that shit's hard it's never not hard to to think about you know what in the course of this podcast i've moved on Hmm. you're a better man than i am mario can't change it you just gotta go no i know but it makes me sad. I was sad go, watching We have it. our own film awards now, and we would not make that mistake. No. And our film awards are the ones that matter to us. That's true. And to everyone else. Yeah, I think so. I and mean, that's the, what I've been told. We're, we're one of the few people that are adhering to the movie has to come out in 2020 rule. So. Well, we've made we've actually set a date now. Well, yeah, but that movie is coming that out in 2020. Yeah. We could have saw that movie this weekend. Uh, that still bugs the shit out of me, Mario. It still bugs the shit out of me. Oh, well. What can you do? I know, but it was just one of those things that was yeah, it was like a serendipitous discovery. Like, holy shit! I mean, there's going to be other film festivals, I think. There is, but it seems like it's one of those things that's playing in a lot of drive-ins. Um, it's like the it's the movie that you have to pay for. No. So I don't know if you looked at the prices for any of those drive-ins and some of these things, but it's like a hundred and something dollars ticket. Really? Some places. I saw one that was 65 but most of them are, like, really expensive. But even $65 to sit in your car and watch Nomadland's a lot. Or Nine Lives. 
I mean, I want to see Nine Lives, but I don't even... You'll just feel depressed. I just, yeah, like, who's going to spend $100 and be like, oh, I'm sad? I think I'd watch Nomadland in my car. I'm not sure I'd watch Nine Lives in my car. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know where I want to watch that movie. <laughs> Probably, like, underneath a blanket. That's not, I'm pretty sure that's how the movie's going to make me feel. I think our next movie, Mario, though, I can attest to that I can watch anywhere. Yeah. And on anything. Oh, for sure. And we will be right back with Mario's number 14. We have, uh, in this list, have had a, a collaboration of directors who, uh, who I have... A collaboration of directors? Um, several directors who have Congregation appeared. of directors. Yeah, congregation is actually the word I was looking yeah, for. Yeah. What's the first word I use? Collaboration. Collaboration. Um, of directors who appear frequently mm-hmm. on my list. Um, and mine. I mean... Yeah, for we, sure. We're getting into that thing where we're like, this is these are who we like. Yeah, there's, there's definitely coming up, you know... A, a group of directors who have three films, you know, in, in, in my top ten. Yeah. But um, the film I'm talking about today is the highest film from one such director. Mm-hmm. We've talked about twice before um, for his horror outings, uh, those being Videodrome and The Fly, speaking of David Cronenberg. Um, <laughs> in case you were wondering... People are like, oh, yeah. And this... Decrow. You ready? I'm ready. I believe... I'd seen The Fly before this, but I didn't know... I didn't think David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. This is the movie at number thir- 14 that starts a Cronenberg obsession. I'm like, oh, he's doing this. The visceral violence, the bodies who get shot and kind of linger around for a while and don't just die instantaneously Mm. the uh juxtaposition between um a healthy view of masculinity and an extremely like toxic view of masculinity um Mm. you know you're doing all of this you are willing to show you know two people in a loving relationship perform a 69 on each other you know, I, I think I can relate to this sort of director. And <laughs> um, for when I saw this in theaters, I saw this opening day um, because the the trailers kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Everything about this kind of blew my mind. Um, surprisingly, while I like Eastern Promises, the the absolute adoration I have for this movie makes Eastern Promises a disappointment to me mm. because I was expecting. I agree with you. More of this. I loved Vigo in Eastern Provinces, but the movie I was just kind of like, Meh. the movie's got a real like map to the stars level of, or cosmopolis level of like kind of Cronenberg kind of on rails. Just it's, like it's, an, it's on rails. It's like a. It's not a fully fleshed out idea. Yeah. And if if Vigo wasn't totally fucking amazing in Eastern Promises, um, in the worst possible year for him to be amazing in something, um, was that the uh, Forrest Whitaker year? No, that was the Daniel Day Lewis year. Was it? Was that the wait? So it was that was two thousand seven. Yeah, is two years later. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought Eastern Promises is the very next year. No, no. So that's the one that he's just not gonna win. Yeah, um, that's, that's that's fair. He was maybe like the fourth person in that list. Um, I this is one of those films 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 I come in with with extremely high expectations. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Has you know, Phantom Thread was one of those other films. Um, the film that now inhabits my number four. Off my 
Why did you do that? <laughs> I was just waiting for you to time stamp it. <laughs> what the time? <laughs> um, I, I went in with such high expectations, like I did with Phantom Thread. Yeah. Like I'm going to do with my number four. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this film blew them away from the first moment. All the way through every turn, every moment it makes it it makes such it makes it makes it with such fun, but also such kind of introspection mm-hmm. uh, in the fact of you see it as somebody who's really in deep with mm. it, who knows what they're doing, um, and that's why my number fourteen is David Cronenberg's two thousand five crime family drama, A History of Violence. They were gonna kill us. You saved our lives. Hello, my hero. Tom Stahl is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Way to go, Tommy. Great, more reporters. You look like reporters. You're the big hero. Really don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bad men, Joey. My name is Tom. It's Joey. You tell me. Sarah? Sarah! My daughter, where is she? What's going on, Dad? They thought they knew me. Thought I was somebody else. Nothing to worry about, Mrs. Stahl. I've been watching over. I don't know what you want, and I don't really care. You should care about what I want, because what I want might change your life. Why don't you ask Tom? And ask him, how come he's so good at killing people? Richie Cusack has lost his brother. Yeah, this, this is a movie about Richie Cusack. His brother, <laughs> you know, just just went off and attacked Carl Fogarty, a made man with some barbed wire. Who the fuck does that? You always were the crazy one, Joey. Always and has oh, disappeared yeah. into the night. And Richie doesn't know where to find him. Should have checked the desert. God, I don't know where he is. And then one day he hears about this guy. Well, Carl Fogarty hears about this guy named Tom Stahl. Who, uh, you know, saved the day in this small Indiana town and killed a couple of bad dudes. Just wanted some coffee. You know, Stephen McHattie and uh, the guy who would go on, I believe, to play Joseph Seed in Far Cry 5. I believe that was the actor. Mm. Um, uh, Billy. Billy Orser is the, the other guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so when I rewatched this, by the way, at first I was like, is that fucking Jason Clark? <laughs> I did too! And I was like... There's no fucking way that's Jason Clark. Because I remember like watching this movie originally, going like, "That guy's good in this. He's not like Stephen McHattie. Yeah, Stephen McHattie's like chewing the fucking scenery." Um, this starts my love affair also with Stephen McHattie. Um, I think a lot of us went through that. I'm still in it. Like Pontypool's great. Pontypool's great. Uh, started my love affair with William Hurt too. It's my really kind of first big introduction oh to William God. Hurt. We'll get. We'll we'll talk about all of it. <laughs> um, you know, but the, you know, he saved the day and killed a couple of these bad serial killing dudes who have gone around just murdering people. Um, and you know, Carl's like, "Well, what the fuck? That guy attacked my eye." And he goes, and uh, you know, Carl gets killed himself. And Richie's like, "You know, you cost me a lot, Joey. You cost me a hell of a lot." Uh-huh. And so eventually, he gets Joey to come back to him. And then Joey, being the asshole he is. Kills his entire crew. You know, Richie's just trying to make good with the people in Philly yep. to make sure the Boston people respect him. Mm-hmm. And Joey kills him. When he de- defenseless Richie. Jesus, Joey. 
<laughs> that's how I that's how I see this movie. Oh, that is so not good. how I see this movie. Um, no, so so to, you know, Viggo Mortensen playing Tom Stahl has left this crime life behind him after attacking the maid man and Carl Fogarty. He's now settled into a, a great relationship besides the major amount of lying and deceit with Edie, played by Maria Bello, which starts started my love affair with Maria Bello that mm-hmm. will continue throughout the ends of time. Even though she's not making good movies anymore. No, but like out. this and the cooler, you know, makes up for Yeah, which is a movie that I hate, but, but she's yeah, great she's great in it. In it. Yes. Um, Alec Baldwin ruins it. No, I think he's really, really? good in it. Yeah. See, I like William H. Macy a lot, like Maria Bello in it, but I think well, Alec Baldwin's kind of. I've like never been a. I, I don't think gambling it. movies are interesting. That's fair. So yeah, that's, 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 that's fair. my major problem with it, yeah. Be, like growing up in Nevada, like gambling movies are. Sure, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they have a healthy relationship. Two kids, uh, Ashton Holmes, who unfortunately got. Re- who I think was a better, maybe possibly a better actor. I think he was good in this. I think he's good, but I, I, I some of the other movies I saw, but I think he was just as good as that guy whose name I'm forgetting right now. Oh yeah, that guy. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Social Network. Oh, Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. But Jesse Eisenberg just, wouldn't have done a good job in this. I think Jesse Eisenberg stole all of all of his potential roles. Maybe. Like definitely, Ashton Holmes wouldn't have been Mark Zuckerberg. But there's probably some other things that Jesse Eisenberg... Like, I think Ashton Holmes could have been an American Ultra. That would have been fine. I don't see Ashton Holmes and Kristen Stewart making out in a... In a... Yeah. I forgot that guy, that writer's name. The piece of shit guy. Whatever. Moving on. Max Landis? Max Landis, yeah. Good scene in that. Poor, poor Ashton Holmes. Now he's just stuck with the Pacific and... It's working. Revenge, or t- the TV show he's it's on. It's working. Uh... You know, Tom then kills these two guys, and the Philadelphia mob comes down on him, and he has to exact revenge to protect his family and get his life back. And in doing so, he creates a wide rift between him and his wife. Um, eventually, he just dismantles an entire crime syndicate because mm-hmm. he's just a fucking force of nature. And he comes back to have some dinner, and they sit there quietly, and he didn't know what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I saw this opening night in theaters with extremely high expectations for a good crime movie. There was a spree of good crime movie. You know, that 2005 to 2007 era, um, you know, we talked about Departed. We're going to talk about the 2007 crime movie coming mm-hmm. up. You know, three crime movies yeah, yeah. year to year to year on my list. Um, and there's several others that kind of missed out. Um, you know, just, just I, was, I was in tune with that genre. Um, and this just takes it a step above. Um, it takes it a step above for, for many different ways. Narratively, there is a villain in each act of this film mm. that gets their fucking ass kicked. I, I, it's funny. I remember the Ashton Holmes. Um, what's his name? I can't. Uh, Jack. Jack. Yeah. I remember the Jack and um, Billy. It's Billy. Bobby. 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 Um, I remember that fight being way more violent. Yeah, it's, it's I remember not, it's in, like, it before I saw it. Like I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is way fucks that kid up. But he just like pushes him around and then like punches him once really yeah. good, and he's like, you put him in the hospital. Leland's face being blasted off, still just as violent as I remember it awesome. being. <laughs> that stuff. No. So I mean, <laughs> I don't know how much you want to talk about this stuff now, but like that stuff never gets fucking old. It doesn't. 
It no. just fucking doesn't. And I'll talk about why that. Why yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but the thing I liked from a narrative standpoint is that there's a villain presented each act, and they get their shit kicked in. Yep. Um, you know, Billy and Leland just get manhandled. You know, uh, Tom takes just takes a knife to the foot. In the second act, yeah, Carl, after two other dudes get killed, get, you know, gets gets Tom on the ground. You know, that's also another great quick flash of violence. Love scene. it. Uh, a thing I like about that, too, is the guy gets shot twice in the chest, but it cuts to him still crawling around, and t- then he dies later. Yep. Because David Cronenberg has 100% always said, and is a director who's like, death isn't nice right. and clean. Mm-hmm. I did David Cronenberg during a war movie. Oof. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to see that actually. I do not want to see that. It would just be one. It would just be one killing. Yeah, you just linger over. You just for follow hours. It for two hours. Um, you know, you know, uh, Jack takes him out quickly, and then when Tom gets to Joe, gets to um, Richie, he fucking doesn't even get shot once. He just destroys them. He got his um, hand cut up a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe because from you know protecting himself yeah. from the uh, Gillette. Yep. Gillette g- 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 what is that called? Piano wire. Yeah. Gazette. Gillette. Does that have a name? It does. I played the, yeah, it does I played have the Hitman name. games enough to uh, to remember it is. Gazette. What if this is where Gillette. we this is where we stop on the podcast? This is where the Gillette. podcast comes unglued. Bajet. Bajet. Garrett. A Garrett. Mm. A Garrett is what it's called. Um... Because the reason that works for me is because, like, Tom represents this kind of, and Joey represents this idea, this force of nature, almost. Like, when he's at his rawness. When he's completely raw, he is nothing but an unstoppable force. He is violence. But, Um, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I just, I don't know if you're ready for me to, I'm not pushing back on, like, the idea, I'm just pushing back on the why. So I'm, I'm wondering if you're ready, no, continue, okay. we're not, we're not there yet. The f- reason, though, this, I love this movie, is that all the violence surrounding it isn't the movie, isn't the conflict. You know, Carl and Richie and Billy and Leland don't mean anything. The core drama of this film is a man maintaining his relationship mm-hmm. with his children and with his wife. The two best scenes in this movie, regardless of, of the great, you know, diner scene and the entire last act that earned William Hurt his very deserved Oscar yeah. um, nomination. Um, the two scenes I love are, are uh, because of the juxtaposition are the two sex scenes. Um, the, the first being this, this really romantic sex scene where, where Joey and Tom or sorry Tom allows himself to be extremely Joey and Tom yeah they have sex with each other <laughs> I think David uh, you know br- uh, that'd be a, a br- Cronenberg I can't remember Brandon Cronenberg yeah, like, yeah, yeah that'd be a Brandon Cronenberg thing um, you know he's he's vulnerable he's he's not I don't want to say he's not effeminate he's just he's a vulnerable considerate lover mm-hmm. um, you know like you always Edie, talked about this, yeah. Edie makes it a thing of of where she's going to performance for him, and what's he do? He wants to pleasure her, mm-hmm. you know. And she's still like struggling to please him, like she has to like bend her body to perform at sixty nine, which I think is great, and it lingers on it. And I remember when this movie came out, the biggest controversy was the fucking sixty nine scene, well, which is hilarious. And it's it's so great when you look at it in context of everything else, especially with all the other violence. Is that like their two sex scenes are not easy. 
Yeah. Like, he's not, like, when but he has his head between her legs, but he's he's lifting her up, he's, like, g- like grabbing her and stuff like that, you know well, what I mean? It's not easy about that. It's passionate. <sighs> but you're, you're like, miss, you're, you did this last week, too. It's, it's not passive. There's nothing no, passive no, 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 about no, no, anything he's no. doing. He's, he's fully engaged in whether he's going down on his wife or he's shooting someone in the fucking face. He's like totally present in that because he has to be because it's not, he's not just anything. He's like all of these things all the time. So like there's an element to that stuff as it, like the violence escalates where you can imagine the sex between them being like much more violent and then it is much more violent. And then even after that happens, you're like, I bet after that they're going to have some really fucked up sex. Yeah, but the thing I love about this though is the aspect of – like when Tom or Joey is in the situations of violence with, with uh, external force, mm-hmm. you know, he's – almost entirely outside of the one moment of Carl in complete control. Um, and even when Carl's about to kill him, he's still in control of the emotion mm-hmm. of the moment. He's still, he's still saying, like, I should have killed you in Philly. He's like, just fucking do it. You mm-hmm. know, he's still in control. But when he's with Edie and when he's with um, Jack, you know, unfortunately, the daughter, you know, uh, Heidi, hey, the Sarah, you know. Long girl, yeah. yeah. She's, she's a non-entity. But, you know, with Jack and with Edie, he is vulnerable he is you know like even no matter how like you know aggressive and violent that second sex scene is he's the one that pulls back she's the one that pulls in she's the one that's in control of that and in control of his emotions during it you know like he's you know it's a very graphic sort of violent not violent but a very uh intense sex scene but she's 100% 100% in control of his emotional state. He's vulnerable there. They, she can be torn, she can, and Jack in a lot of ways, um, can tear him apart. And you never see that with any of these outside forces. That's what I find so interesting about this Well, movie. the violence, I think, comes from, I think it is violent, and I think it comes from the stairs. So, because they're not like, they never, they never get themselves settled anywhere. They're crawling around the whole time. The, the, you can hear the stairs. You know what I mean? They're, it's it's wooden. You can it feels wooden. It feels sharp. But then the ownership I feel like comes from the way you know for me anyway that she was maybe not dictating terms, but she was just as if not more so like engaged in what was happening. Is the scene right after that where she comes into the room and she just has a robe on. You know what I mean? And you can see your breasts and you can see um, it's like full frontal shot. Um, and he's just sitting there with her, his clothes on. She can be open. Like she's totally open yeah. where he's still like all he's still all bound up. And it's a mirror of that first sex scene where he's like waiting for her to change. He's and so he's like nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he kind of, you know, oh, take off his shirt now. You know what I mean? He's got he wants to. You know, he, he doesn't know how to actually be vulnerable because he's, you know. He's who he is. You know what I love about that shot, that, that second sex scene, though? Because so, he's still, like, kind of, in that first sex scene, he's still kind of awkward. But in that moment after she comes out in the shower and kind of looks at him and then, like, walks off, mm-hmm. he smiles slightly. Because he, I don't know. Maybe it's kind of like, it, it's, it's this weird, I, maybe this is overreach, but I take it as the moment where he, you know, Vigo's character, I want to say that, realizes he's Tom. 
I'm not Joe anymore. And that's like makes the decision of I have to kill Joey. Right. So because he realizes then when he smiles and like she still kind of looks at him with disgust, but kind of like a, a fucking do it, fin it. Like, like it's kind of like a do what you have to do sort of like look she well, gives him. Two, yeah. And that smile is like a realization of like, I will do this because I am Tom. So there's two things to that. I think one of them is exactly, exactly what you're saying. He's aware of the, his duality the whole time. But I think one of the things that he's not necessarily aware of until it, until maybe that moment is that, but we're aware of it, is that the reason he can be in control like this is because of his past, but also because he has something to lose. So he's got something over those other guys who have nothing to lose. Yeah, you know, as, the Richie, first... as Richie says, you know, I never was one to settle down. Too right. many good-looking women. He's got this house, he's got his money, he's got his goons, and what oh, have you. You did pretty good for you. Yeah, I did. <laughs> God, he's so good. But he's got something to lose. So it's... The moment when he, I think, I think you're right. The moment that he kind of figures himself to be Tom, is probably right there, and it's when he commits himself to. There's only one way to take care of this. I thought I could, kind of piece by piece, like fend this stuff off, um, or that his maybe even that his reputation would kind of carry Carl Fogarty out of town. You know what I mean? Um, but it's not gonna. And that's when, and that's when he has that moment. You know what I mean? Like sitting on the bed, like, all right, my God, this is it. Like this is it. Right there. That is it. That's what I have to like focus all of my attention on. Is that thing right there? That woman right in front of me. So, um, yeah, continue. No, and and that's you know beyond beyond the the fundamental levels of of just fun filmmaking. We'll talk about here in a minute. That's the reason I love this movie is, mm. is the fact that like it is a violent graphic movie that I think most people look at it as being a movie about like the magnitude of violence. Like listening to other podcasts and, and reviews of it, it's like the magnitude of violence and the effect it has on it. But it, it's not that at all. No, like, it's not a domestic is, abuse movie. No, 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 no. Not even a domestic abuse movie. It just it's just about how like violence, the his, you know your experience of whatever will follow you throughout your life yeah. sort of thing um but it's not bad it, it, it's just about this man realizing who he really is realizing who he really wants to be and well, needing to exercise those demons for something that is more meaningful than himself because until this point when he's been hiding this 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 character he's, he's still been lying he's still yeah, not yeah. been fully tom mm -hmm. because joey is there you know because he hasn't been called this uh naive point of view of a relationship but something like this i i feel as though you couldn't have a healthy relationship with your wife or children if tom you tom you you could answer this if you had murdered hundreds of people yep and hadn't told your wife or children yeah do you think that relationship would have been the healthiest relationship you I mean, could it's, have it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> but, i mean i mean no <laughs> well so oh that's so interesting that you just said that because one of the things that i think is really great about this movie is I think the screenplay is really subtle, and I think it's way better than people think it is because they say a lot of cliched things. You know what I mean? And um, the Ashton and and uh, the Jack character is really kind of uber pathetic. Speaking and, of which, you know what? What happened? Like, why did he do this movie and then just blah, goodbye? I don't know. I don't know. Like this is I agreed. Like he's 
Josh Olsen like wrote the shit out that like, he got an Oscar nomination. For yeah, this, and he wrote the shit out of this. But movie. I think the great thing is that to what you're saying is that he's when he kills people in this movie, right? When we see Tom kill people or Joey kill people, he's not doing it with any kind of style, right? Mm. He's not doing it any kind of. He's literally just efficiently murdering people that are trying to murder him. But that's why I think the Carl Fogarty thing is so interesting. It's that it's so self-indulgent that instead of killing this guy, he would try to rip his eye out with barbed wire. And that makes no sense. This is, it's just total fucking nonsense. So the violence in here is not necessarily indicative. It's indicative of you know a change in character. But it's also indicative of like a change in perspective about like what violence means, like a domestication of violence. So it's not a it's not necessarily about I actually think for me it negates the whole idea that this movie is about violence because it's in reality it's probably less violent than it should be. Another version of this movie continues him cutting people's eyes out of their faces with barbed wire, but he's just like, I'm just dispensing with that shit. It's just... Dish, 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 dish. Yeah, what, what S. Craig Zoller, History of Violence, looked like. I think Jeremy Solonay would, would try to do the Cronenberg track of just, like, quick shots of extreme violence. Yeah. Like, but I think S. Craig Zoller would be like, you know what I can do? I can have... The, <laughs> I can have... I can have Jack hold one leg and Tom hold the other leg and have the daughter split Fogarty down the middle with an axe. Right on the lawn. Well, Edie talks about libertarianism. And then she cooks it in a stew. Nice. Is he a libertarian? I, we don't know. What I feel like I, I look up S. Craig Zeller up a lot, and I feel like he doesn't have enough to say about Trump. I just don't think he cares. He seems like the type of guy who just doesn't care, honestly. Mm. He should care. Because if, if, if the world kind of... <sighs> Starts being more accepting of certain styles of art and stuff like that, and he's not a provocateur. Like, what's he gonna do? He's gonna make more funk music. Does he make funk music? Well, yeah. I mean, all this stuff, all this, the music in his movies is oh. very like. Bow, bow, bow. Does he do the music for his movies? Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, but no. So switching gears, the other reason I love this film is is, and in a similar way, it's it's not the movie that like mirrored just me to love movies, but there's it's a movie that like. You look at moments and you go like, holy shit, that's awesome. The long kind of like the long shot in the beginning mm -hmm. where it's kind of building up to the fact that Stephen McCaddy, uh, Leland has just murdered that entire group of people um, yeah. in, in, in the motel. Um, just the nonsense talking about water leading into finally where Billy goes inside and, you know, you see the two bodies. And at first you actually don't think anybody's been killed and until Leland goes like, well, the, you know, the maid gave me some trouble. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, oh. But then I Billy understand. looks at all the postcards and, like, gets a soda. Gets a mug. Yeah. And then kills a little girl. Yeah. Um, you know, but so stuff like that. Stuff like the, the, the perfectly, like, cut... Um, diner sequence like that's mm -hmm. one of the great Perfect. scenes uh and this is ronald sanders who would i think he probably has just worked with has he been with um yeah he's been with uh how long has he been with him for oh forever the editor for cronenberg for mm -hmm. ever for all um, his movies yeah nice like 
first one I can see is scanners. So good, he didn't. He didn't good do career if you can he get didn't it. do the Marilyn Chambers one, which is the movie. The name forget uh, escapes me. Breed something. Mm. You want to talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breeding or whatever. That movie sucks. I, think I, I tried to go way. I tried. I watched all the Cronenbergs, mm-hmm. and some of them are rough. Mm-hmm. They still have existence, and I'm one of the few that does. I think, um, but that perfectly edited, like di- like nothing that nothing is wasted space oh, in perfect. that sequence. Yep. Um, you know, leading, like just just the moments of tension that the Howard Shore kind of early two thousands Howard Shore mm-hmm. score works. Um, it does because. I just because Howard, I guess Howard Shore just knew, like, was on the wavelength of what this film needed, mm-hmm. um, assuming it was done in post well, and not like Joker esque yeah, yeah. bullshit. Um, fuck you, Joker. This is how you lay on the ground. Lay on the ground to this. What is this telling you about how you're could, laying on the ground? Could you Walking imagine Phoenix? Todd Phillips remaking this movie? He would totally remake <laughs> this movie. <laughs> There'd be a big dance sequence in the middle of it. Um, but no, leading to that that final that final act that's so fucking great you know like that final act with how well it's it's put together how well written it is how well performed it is how well edited it is um well william hurt gave a bunch of of he's better than clooney oh yeah he's better than dylan he's better than than um who else was uh gillenhall yeah um, uh, Gyllenhaal was the second, mm-hmm. and I can't remember who the fifth nominee was that year. I don't remember. It's probably somebody good. I think I have it. Um, um, Gyllenhaal was great in in Brokeback Mountain. What I um, what I remember is, but to, it's this this is this is uh, when you have a guy on screen for so that year is Javier Bardem, Casey Affleck, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hal Holbrook. Oh wait, no, that's a different year. That's it. I was like, what the? Fuck? Oh, that's Eastern Promises year. Haha. <laughs> uh, this so Michelle Williams. That's not right. Um. Paul Giamatti for Cinderella Man. Yeah, I would say Ugh. I would have been okay with Hurt or Gyllenhaal that year. Mm-hmm. Um, Clooney's, they threw him a bone because of that year because this is the year of, yeah, good night and good luck. Yeah. That's the only reason he won. I um, I remember, you know a movie hits you good when you go to the Ebert Review and you read it and I remember Brett East Nelson, Quentin Tarantino talking about this Pauline Kale. Like Quentin Tarantino would say, like you hadn't actually seen the movie all the way through until you saw the movie and then read Pauline Kale's review of the movie, and that's how you knew you saw a movie. It was kind of that way. I heard she loved this movie. Did she? I don't know. She was dead by the time this came out. Um, she would. She would have liked it. Yeah, she would probably love Cronenberg. Um, I mean, she, I'm sure she had to review some Cronenberg stuff. I think she. Um, so one of the, so I felt that I there was a period where I felt that way about Roger Ebert is that like if I saw just seeing a movie wasn't enough and just reading all the other reviews wasn't enough I had to read the Roger Ebert thing and the thing that stuck out to me with the Roger Ebert review is that he was like William Hurt is hitting some notes that I haven't seen an actor hit before not William Hurt hit an actor hit and I think one of the things that this did you can see a direct line in this movie to Drive mm-hmm. with Albert Brooks to even like to this year with Kenneth Branagh's uh, villain and tenant where you get an older actor Did you see that movie? No. Oh. But I just know that like Kenneth Branagh's like oh. not in it a ton and when he's in it is just fucking chewing scenery up. You see in oh, this is before Sexy Beast. Oh no, this is after Sexy Beast. So this is a Sexy Beast thing too where you have like this classical actor. Maybe it's a Sexy Beast thing more than it's a William Hurt thing, but I was aware of it from William Hurt. 
where you have this like this all time great actor a, just destroying life. I keep forgetting it's Glazer. Sexy Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Sexy Beast. Did Kingsley get not Kingsley did not get nominated for that, right? No. No. Yeah, he yes. did get nominated. He just didn't win. He should have won. No, yeah, he did. He lost to Jim Broadbent. Ray Winstone didn't get nominated, which is a fucking travesty. But I forgot Jim Broadbent has an Oscar. Yeah. Of course he does. You think Jim Broadbent remembers he has an Oscar? Yeah. He doesn't have to make any good choices anymore. He's got the Oscar. He made Hot Fuzz after that. He... Oh, I don't like Hot Fuzz. Um, a lot of people do. I know. I, I fucking know it, man. I know it. You're sitting across from one. I know. Um, this William Hurt performance ruined my life. It was. It's still maybe one of the best screen performances I've ever seen. It's in my one of the life. better comedic performances of the 2000s. But while simultaneously not being funny, like it's funny, but it's also like this guy's gonna. This is not like regular. You know what yeah. I mean? This is not like. Well, I mean, I just I love when he was like, "I tried to kill you in your crib." I, I guess all kids do that. It's like, what do you mean my, all kids do that? My mother beat me. Your <laughs> mother beat me. Oh my god, this was so fucking good. You know what's interesting to me? Mortensen called it one of the perfect film noirs, and that was a weird thing to say about this film. I, but it is. But I have to. Oh. So the great thing about this movie, and one of the things I think I, I think I mentioned it when we talked about it for my list, was that this movie isn't like a textbook example of anything. It's like a family drama, but a family drama in which multiple piece, people's faces get blown off. You know what I mean? And a lot of people die. And there's graphic sex scenes. It's also a film noir that takes place because there's like all this hidden stuff. You know what I mean? There's all these there's stakes and yeah, yeah. all the stuff that makes noir fair. noir. But it's all in the daylight. Did you ever notice that there's no darkness in this movie except for that the end of the movie? Like everything happens. Then when in, he's driving to Richie's place, right? But everything happens during the day. You know what I mean? All the murder, and everything's brightly lit. Yeah. But and so even in the diner scene, exactly. Even in the diner scene, you don't really register that it's like the end of the day, perhaps, or the end of some kind of day. It's in the diner. There's a bunch of people in there. They're closing up shop, but because it's because of like the nature of the lighting, you don't think of it as. As nighttime, so it doesn't have all those traditional noir things, and I think he even took out some of the, some of the more noiry things. I mean, there was a bunch of extra scenes in here. It's so domestic. It's like the most domestic noir ever. I think one of the great scenes in this movie is, the uh, the conversation between Ed Harris and Maria Bello in like that shitty mall, when the daughter just kind of wanders off and Fogarty is just watching her, and you don't ever get the sense that he's going to do anything to her. He's not. His intention here is not to kill his family. But he's willing to, like, dismember Jack if, you know, Joey won't go do what he wants to do. But that's the thing that, besides how fun it is, because this movie's so much fucking fun. Oh, I just, like, yeah. all those great, the, the, all these scenes are action sequences where there's, like, the one action is that, like, someone shoots somebody and then, like, Viggo Mortensen jumps over a, a diner, like, counter. Or Viggo Mortensen... In the- face several times (laughs) right like that's the most action that happens here or then you know when he gets to richie's place when he's about to get choked and he like falls down and then he just kicks the shit out of a guy and there's some there's some stuff happening but it's not how do you fuck that up yeah he shoots him um so it's like it looks like a bunch of different kinds of movies but it's in actual fact none of them um, 
it looks like it's going to be this really hokey family thing. And I think the Jack storyline with Bobby kind of hues towards that. And it also hues towards like the judgment that you were kind of talking about earlier. Yeah, I wonder, about, I've never like, read the graphic novel. Me neither, I yeah. wonder if that's like a big part of it. Maybe. That they kind of kept in. But it's the idea that like this, I think it speaks to the idea that like of but also escalating cut, violence. Cut all of that. You don't really have a long you have like a set like a 65 minute long but movie. i also think you miss like you miss some subtext if you don't have it there because he kicks the shit out of bobby but then he kill he has to kill somebody so conceivably he's going to carry that around with him for the rest of his life how does that manifest in 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 his family life or with his girlfriend or like with everybody else going forward the mission director of apollo 13 he killed him yeah <laughs> that's a t- that's a tough blow yeah, you, you gotta live with that. A former Marine who did not want to drop serum gas on a bunch of San Francisco people. Yeah, the more that I think about that movie, the more I think that he shouldn't have started that in the first place, and I think he knew it. So it's a problem. It's a problem for The Rock, I think. You know what? I think I think David Morris should have been the, the Ed Harris role. I think so too. Although I do like that. I don't know the David Morris Ed Harris dynamic is great in that. It is great. But I also think that they could have he done holds it. a gun to him and he's like, I will serve. And like, oh. And then Tony Todd ends up being the actual main villain. That's, that's great. Come on. <laughs> Tony Todd's the actual main villain. I love that. Genius. That movie's like, yeah. But Wasn't just... Tony Todd the main villain in one of the Transformers movies too? Like, oh, I don't voice? know. I think he was. I never saw any Good of the Transformers job, movies. Tony Todd. Did you see him? Yeah, I saw the first two. You didn't see like the, the crazy ones? The King, Ar- the King Arthur ones? No, God no. I'm not an insane person. If I see Anthony Hawkins is in something, I, I does he have an eye it. patch in that movie? <laughs> Who knows? I didn't see it. You got an eye patch in Thor. <laughs> oh right, I did see Thor. Um, no, this it, it's this movie's interesting because it, it's is doing so many things, but doing it on so many levels. Um, you know, you could see, like we said, you could see somebody like a Jeremy Solnay trying to take on the violence aspect of it. You could see a Todd Field trying to take on the family drama mm. part of it. You know, but it. Cronenberg knows how to hew all these things together. Right, because the pitch of the violence, I think, is key to how yeah. this movie works. It can't just be like, he shoots him and we don't see it. You know what I mean? It can't be that, like... Um, because his family fucking sees it. Right. It can't be that, that Tom just, like, punches a guy out. He has to take the time to fucking strike him with the heel of his hand, like, seven times in the nose. It's called a palm. But isn't this the heel? No, it's a palm. It's still, all no, the palm's palm. like here. Isn't this the all heel? All this is the palm. Is that the heel that. of your hand? Really? I think so. I think so. We're going to look this up after the podcast. Is there an anatomy website that we can go to? <laughs> Do we have any listeners that are oh, one of these people. that are key? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that are uh, into anatomy. Um, but yeah, that's for me. It's it's a subversion. Of, it's a, a subversion. Not subversion. Um, subversion of a lot of different genres. Subversion. While simultaneously kicking fucking That's ass. a Reddit user. Subversion, is it? No, no, it's just like people on Reddit are probably subversions. Take that, less Reddit. We're going to shit on Reddit. I'm less than a virgin. They're just called incels. Um, I don't... I still don't understand how that's a thing. What? Incels. People are mad. But like, I'm an involuntary celibate. Mm-hmm. Several things here. They would have had sex with everything, but no, everything won't have sex with them. Here's several problems I have with this. Ready? This is gonna this is gonna cost us our lives. 
Uh-huh. No, I, no, I don't actually have several points. The first point being just like sex work exists. Mm. Also, could, just don't be a shitty person. Just like, so, emotional. Stop thing. being like, boop, 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 yeah. boop, I'm sad. Nobody will sleep with me. It's like, you, know why no, you know why nobody's going to sleep with you? Because you're like, boop, 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 I'm sad. Nobody's going to sleep with you. No, you know what? You could be sad. <laughs> you could be sad that, that you're not in a relationship or whatnot. But it's like you start going, boop, 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 I'm sad. And it's everyone else's fault. It's like maybe just do some self-reflection and do some... Correction of behavior. Well, that's. I mean, I, I I like how we've been able to transition into like the modern culture here. But I think that's what kind of everyone. Well, because we're talking about Todd Phillips earlier, doing yeah. it, and Todd Phillips would definitely make this an incel movie. And that's somehow. what. I, yeah. Oh, I think he definitely would. Think, like Maria Bella would be like this uninterested woman who he just like demands like sex from. Yeah. He's like, put on that cheerleader mm-hmm. outfit. And then it turns out like it's all in his head in the end, or something like that, and then. Or, Todd Phillips is like, just people can't take a joke anymore. It's like, declared, maybe because the Hangover movies weren't that good. And this would be funny if this is a Trouble Every Day sequel. And Viggo Mortensen just ate Maria Bello. No, Maria Bello would eat he him. He literally ate her. No, Maria Bello would eat him. So it's a twist. But no, Wolf is a Todd Phillips movie. Then he, he hasn't seen any Denis films. He probably has. <laughs> Todd Phillips made a movie thinking he was so clever uh, based on a semi-popular Martin Scorsese film. I don't think he's seen... What's that? Well, King, like, King of Comedy. Oh, Todd Phillips. I don't what know do why I keep thinking about? you're t- talking about Todd Fields. Oh, no, Todd Fields seen plenty. Todd Fields would have... Todd Fields <laughs> Todd Field would have done... Todd Fields would have done a, a good job with this, but it just would have been, like, purely about the family... And, like, you would have heard through the news radio about some murders. <laughs> yeah, this, this is from the, told from the perspective of the cop. What are you talking about? I do love Todd Field. Yeah, you got a Todd Field. But I thought you were talking about Todd Fields. Oh. And I was like, what Martin Scorsese movie did he make? Goddamn S in his name. I know. That's, that's my bad. That's his, my his, bad. His subpar sports writer brother is named Todd Field. That's not true at all. <laughs> if you want to tell us what his correct spelling is. Wait, do we have anything else to talk about history of violence? I think. I, think I mean, I just. I mean, I, I mean, it's just so. There's a lot to say about it. But, like. I guess. Is there anything we've not covered? I feel like it'd be. If, a lot to say means we go scene by scene and kind of dissect what's happening yeah, on, we're not that on every guess. level. Um, I think one of the. Under, I'll just finish. One of the underrated scenes, I think, is when Tom sees the car after the, after the oh, initial. Home. Yeah. After Carl. Shows up the first time when he's like at the the diner really early yeah. in the morning. The coffee sounds great, Joey. Yeah, the light there. You don't get coffee like this in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's so good. But also, he's also been pretty nice. Mister Fogarty's just making conversation. Ed Harris is great in this movie too. Nobody like like discusses that. Ed Harris is pretty tremendous. Well, they make a movie together later called Appaloosa. Which I think is oh, him and Viggo Mortensen, yeah, 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 which is not any good. But you just kind of want the whole time, like, oh, you guys are so good together. Why can't you just do this every time? There's no reason that this, the chemistry between you should be bad. Wasn't that, wasn't that like, directed by Viggo Mortensen? No. I don't think so. But directed by Ed Harris. Oh. Ed Harris just didn't know what he was doing. He doesn't strike me as a director guy. Yeah. Although I do love Ed Harris. He's one of the guys, I don't know if, how you feel about this, he's one of the guys that would never begrudge an Oscar nomination. Well. Because it's um, probably okay. 
Like, even in the hours. That Oscar nomination that he got from the hours was kind of unexpected. But I was like, he's really good in the hours. He's got, what, two Oscar nominations? Or three? No, how many has he got? I feel like he Four? won one, right? Didn't he win one in, like, the 70s? No? That's too bad. In the 70s? What? I thought he won, like, one really early. No, he's never. He's ah, never it's, a, won. it's a bummer. Last time he was nominated was in 2002. For the hours, I seem to I seem to remember thinking that I wanted him to win for Pollock, and I don't remember why. He should have won for Pollock. I'm trying to remember like who won for Bo- who won that year. Uh, that was the much Collin won for that year. Um, Marshall Harden won. Yeah, but who won oh, Best Actor? That's what I'm looking. Yeah, Russell Crowe won in Gladiator. Yeah, he should have won. Jeffrey Rush and Quills. No, Tom Hanks and Castaway. No, yeah. actually, I'm I'm okay with. I'm that. Okay, I would have been okay with that. Um, Javier Bardem maybe before Night Falls but it also been a good mm. one but I think Ed Harris Hanks or Bardem should have won that yeah year. Russell Crowe's the worst of the five well I fucking hate that movie so it's hard for Not me to good. even talk about it well, I like that movie when it, when it first came out and I rewatched it and I'm like this isn't good it's got good gore yeah I uh, I didn't even think the gore was that good yeah it's, it's very I'm gonna be fake, honest with you I don't love Ridley Scott I don't either so this guy either he made Hannibal. You see Hannibal? I did see that Hannibal. That movie's terrible. Hannibal was bad in Inconception. The fact that they were just like, we're gonna do the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, and I'm gonna do it. Me, Ridley Scott, am the perfect guy to do it. Oh, Jodie Foster won't do it. Nobody Julian. will care if Julianne Moore like, does every, it. Like everyone will care. We all care. This makes no sense anymore. How they not like just. Did Jonathan and me refuse to do that, do you think? I'm sure they all refuse to do it, except for Anthony Hopkins, who was just like, how much? I like money? Yeah. Anthony Hopkins is like, it's definitely in the Michael Caine class of acting. Oh, like, yeah. You know. Yeah, I, but you know what's so funny? <laughs> here's I have how... not seen Jaws the Revenge. All right, listen. Uh, and I've heard it is quite terrible. But the film, but the house in which it is bought is not. I'm going to make uh, a, I'm gonna, is a I'm going to turn this that, podcast but... into what we kind of, I were, I'm assuming, didn't want it to be tonight. It's proof that racism exists in Hollywood for the fact that, like, people like Michael Moore can... Or Michael Moore. Um, Michael Bay? Not Michael Scott. Bay. Michael Who are we just talking about? Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Can make a movie like The Quiet American, which has Brendan Fraser in it, and get an, an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Okay? It's the fact that, like, Anthony Hopkins is in this Alzheimer's movies with, with you know, the father. The father, yeah. Which is, I think, just a, a, a sequel, as I think, in his mind, to The Two Popes, <laughs> where he clearly did not know he was in a movie on several occasions. It wasn't like he was... I think he sleeps a lot now. It wasn't like he was looking not... In, he, he obviously wasn't supposed to be looking at the camera. I really hope he doesn't have any, like, mental issues. I, I, just I hope he does, too. But didn't... I, see, oh, I hope he doesn't. I just me, hope too. He, I, I, hope hope he's, I, hope, I also hope he doesn't have I mental just kind issues. Of, uh, he just kind of seems like he's tuned out. Just when you were to, like, watching The Last Pope, The Two Popes, The Last Popes, The Two Popes, Weren't there a couple of times when you were watching him where it didn't seem like he 100% knew where he was? Where he was was just like delivering lines in like like an empty space? It seemed like he just didn't care at some point. So everyone, as soon as they announced the father was going to be a thing, everyone was like, who the other four nominations? You know what I mean? That's like if anyone's pre-COVID. Right. If anyone's looking for an example of systemic racism or needs proof that there's systemic racism in Hollywood... Look at the it's police the fact that, system? Well, no, I'm just saying, like, in Hollywood. Because you have all these, like, you know, 
You have all these things happening. Look at the number of people of color who are major directors. Exactly. Look at the number of, of, of Criterion films that were directed by black actors or, or, or black directors or, or female directors or anything. There's systemic discrimination across all of movie making. The fact that, like, these guys, these old guys could just be like, sure, I'll make a movie with Brendan Fraser. And then people are just like, Oscar nomination. Yeah. The, and fact, then, be, the fact that Delroy Lindo is still, like, a question mark. How is he a question mark? But, like, we're still saying, like, we're, we're still not sure. I won't be surprised if he doesn't get nominated. How? Who else would get nominated? Exactly. But somebody pr- could. <sighs> Who? Who would that even be? Um, you know, Jim Carrey is going lead for Sonic. <laughs> James Marsden goes lead for Sonic. Ben Schwartz goes lead for Sonic, and he gets a, <laughs> the first voice actor to get. Wait, no, did Robin Williams get nominated for the genie? No, no. So first voice actor. Take yeah. that circus. If you want to talk about systemic racism in Hollywood, um, because probably, we can't resist. We're probably not the people that talk, we don't know how well versed we'd be on that, but you could uh, tweet us. You could tell us what we're wrong. Yeah. I mean, if you're right about it. Like, yeah. if you have certain opinions, we'll just block you. At Film Pivotal. Uh, or you can send us a, a more lengthy, uh, you know, uh, message. You can, you can make a thread. Sure, on you can make Twitter. a thread. Um, could you imagine like a thousand tweet thread? Is that possible? Awesome. Sure. Why not? Cool. And who, of course, we would inspire it. We're so active. Um, <laughs> to pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. There's a comment or a, a contact window there. You can uh, send your message that way. Or you can just look at the films on our Pivotal Film list or listen to the beers that we drink or how to subscribe or. I do like how our listeners are content Twitter. just to listen to us and just not engage. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, you know what? We're good. So we don't need you for that. We don't want to talk to you. We just want to listen. Yeah. Which is good. That's my kind of fan. That's the kind of fan that I am. I'm just like, I don't want to know you. I just want to, I just want to read your books. I just want to listen to your records. Yeah, could you imagine if we had taken off and like people start like, I think we wouldn't have been able to, I think we would have quit this podcast if we had somehow like gotten a lot of people engaging us. Well, I think if we had to answer to somebody, if they were like, you were too harsh about whatever. And I was, we would just be like, I don't fuck care. you. Like, <laughs> but if we had to you do that every we week, got, but we got comments from Aunt kind. And both of us were like, who's going to respond to this. And we just kind of sat on those comments for several days. Just nervous. We responded. Well, because those people seem so much more intelligent than we do. Yeah, we're just like, yeah, we just got there first. We read quickly. Yeah, it's our it's our one legitimate like takeoff episode. Um, <laughs> well, besides Tennessee, loving. Uh, I forget that Tennessee boy. exists now. Because yeah. because that because they don't listen to that episode anymore. Maybe they they forgot about Beautiful Boy. They forgot it exists. They're just like, what is that movie? I did too. To be honest with you. Which is the right thing to do. Yeah. Now I have to read reviews of Timothy Chalamet and Woody Allen movies, which is not making me happy. I thought we'd just pretend that movie doesn't exist. But all the reviews are coming out now? Yeah, apparently Timothy Chalamet auditioned for uh, Prisoners and didn't get it. Whoa, good. For who? What? What part? The boy. Oh, okay. Not the Paul Dano role, I don't think. I was going to say. 
Because that would have just not made sense. He would have just that would have just been a sexually active kid, not a. I mean, because well, Timothy Chalamet uh, would have been like fifteen. Yeah, 14. yeah. I'm gonna give you homework next week, and which is not next week, though two weeks from now, which is we're gonna have to explain some Paul Dano. I want you to have hot takes about what is happening with Paul Dano. Good. In your number thirteen, is it Little Miss Sunshine? No, I hate that fucking movie. You know what the worst part of that movie was? What do you think the worst part of that movie is? Do you like that movie? No, I hate it. Um, what do you think the worst part of that movie is? Or when did you know that you were going to hate it? Steve Carell. Okay, okay. <laughs> Which part? When did you know? Could you pinpoint the moment you were like, I don't remember I much of it, hate this movie. but I remember like his second scene. Which like, is? He's trying to like, the, scene, it's like the, second, the scene where he starts trying to describe the suicide. Oh, okay. Like initially. So my scene is also Steve Carell. It's... When he like goes into Paul Dano's room, and you know Paul Dano's like pointing to like the picture on his wall that like the drawing on like that 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 sheet, and he's like Nietzsche, you're not talking because of Friedrich Nietzsche, and I was like, oh, this pretentious motherfucking asshole, ah, oh, that was the worst, and then I and then that was it. That was the end of the Little Miss Sunshine for me. You know, my, you know my favorite Paul Dano film, though, right? No. I talked about it a lot. I stopped talking about it, like, in, like, 2014. Oh, the Zoe Kazan movie? Yeah, Ruby Sparks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Ruby Sparks. Ruby Sparks almost made the list. Why is it on your list? Almost. Uh, Could have used Ruby Sparks. It stopped, we did talk about it. It stopped just, like, being a thing in 2014. We talked about it with it. Like, once... I think if the Manic Pixie Girl had remained a thing throughout, mm-hmm. like, the the rest of the decade it would have but like it died out with like it just died out hmm. they all died the manic pixies yeah so we can still alive no she wasn't a manic pixie though but like zoe deschanel's dead and oh. katie perry's dead is katie perry dead and Kristen ritter's dead and Kristen ritter's not really a, a, a manic pixie the odd thing about all these names that you're dropping are that like i don't know what they're doing I know Zoe, yeah, because Zoe Kazan just did a plot against America. The other three, I have no idea where they are. Yeah, what are they doing? Katy Perry's doing music still. Is she? Zoe Deschanel is. I don't know. And Christian Ritter is in a movie coming up. She just got cast in something that was semi, maybe important. Jessica Jones. No, something. Something. If you want to watch that movie, I guess you can wait a couple years for it to come out. Yeah, so while you're waiting, you can drink several beers, you can drink, watch more movies, and uh, we'll talk to you a bunch of times in between now. Feels solid. <laughs>